Welcome to The Republican Professor. Today we have with us a special guest, as opposed to all the non-special guests, Blake McAllister. Hi. Thanks for uh, being here, Blake. Happy to be here, Lucas. Why am I so special to you? I have fond memories <laughs> of you. I I have fond memories of a specific semester, fall of 2008. And we, there was this, uh, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a little story. There was this uh, classroom that was marginalized on campus. Yes. <laughs> it was, it was like in this bunker. Uh, there was a piano in this classroom. I think there was a, I think a refrigerator in the classroom. I mean, there was all sorts of random stuff in this classroom. And I remember I, now I had forgotten all, all about that. Yeah. Sorry. You, you, uh, you probably the <laughs> in, in therapy, it comes out. Right. Uh, I can't remember what, what it was. PL PL four or something. I can't remember. It was, uh, I know I, I would know how to get there, but I don't remember the name of it. Like where I didn't have a name. It was just that. Yeah, room. I don't even know if it had a name actually. Um, but it was in. It wasn't in the uh, humanities. It wasn't in CAC Cultural Arts Center. It was in. Um, oh gosh, down below where it starts with the P's. Um, anyway, but uh, you know, I always remember you because you would always volunteer to go get stuff for me. Like you would always go. <laughs> volunteer to get what what did you get like some kind of like tv or something or, or vcr or I, I don't know what it was what were you getting like the thing that comes into my mind was like a this couldn't be the what it was uh was what i used we used to have in when i was in college which was those gosh, I don't even know what you call them anymore. You know, when they write on the clear thing and it shines up on the screen. Do you know what those oh, are yeah, called? Oh, yeah, the projectors. Somehow. Yeah, but they weren't called projector. They were called, um, I can't remember, but they would have marker and they would write on it. But it wasn't that. What would you get me? You, you would get, you would get the... I don't. I Now that you say this, I remember projector? leaving the class, but I have no idea what for. All well, these you were, all, you were always volunteering to do something like put, I should go look at your rec. I wrote you no, a letter of recommendation is probably in there. As I say, here's uh, here. I am thinking that I you know, was good at logic or something, but instead <laughs> it's, I was getting things for you, <laughs> which no, hey, no, no, you were, no, I didn't finish the story though, <laughs> but that see you stand out to me because of your, your servant heart. Because anybody can be good at logic, you know, and you were, um, that was a fun class. That was logic 2000, fall 2008 at, at Pepperdine university in Malibu. That's right. And, yeah. and, uh, fortuitously, I am teaching logic this semester at Hillsdale. Oh, cool. Wow. I, my first semester at Hillsdale teaching logic, I taught it back in graduate school, but, um, the, my colleague who normally teaches logic is on sabbatical this year, so I'm filling in. So when I saw your email, I thought we've no come full circle. My logic that's so cool. Reaching out. 
Yeah, I just remember your servant heart and you just seem so humble, totally smart, but humble. And you seemed very mature to me. Like you seemed like you had a handle on who you were and where you were going. And I don't mean in like an ambitious way. I, I mean, obviously you were ambitious. You got a PhD, right? You went ended sure. up going to Baylor and getting a PhD in uh, philosophy where you specialized in epistemology, right? Is that right? Correct. Have all that? Correct. Okay. So epistemology, yeah. I mean, dude, that is like the rock star stuff in philosophy, I think, but. I'm glad you think so. I, I, when I teach intro, um, they eat up all of the uh, the ancient philosophy, the medieval philosophy, and then we get to early modern philosophy and we do epistemology and, you know, the class just <laughs> uh, wilts for a few uh, weeks and then we, you know, go back to. They don't like it? Temporary ethics. But they find it challenging. Um, yeah. Those who like it really love it and become absorbed in it. Hmm. Um but it's, it's, it's challenging stuff. Yeah. I didn't actually love it as much as I do now in undergrad. Mm. I remember taking um, epistemology with Dr. Garrett Pendergraft. Mm -hmm. I think you've had him on the show. Yeah. Um, he was an excellent professor, but I remember coming out of that class and thinking, I'm not sure epistemology is for me. Mm. And then as soon as I got to graduate school, it just kept coming up. Yeah. You couldn't have these debates about any other issue without also having an epistemological conversation about how are we supposed to, you know, come to a judgment about any of these matters. Yeah. Um, and so I just kept finding myself more interested. I mean, I was definitely interested in the contents of the debates themselves, but interested in the shape of the actual debate what evidence are different sides presenting? How are we supposed to reach a reasonable conclusion about these things? And so those epistemological questions seem to me, um, not that you have to solve them before you can have the other debates, but that I wanted to to focus on that before um, before getting into the, the the thick of the debate itself. How would you define first philosophy and then epistemology because mm -hmm. there's probably people listening to this that don't have a ready answer to those words sure well um as you might expect the nature of philosophy is itself one of the greatest matters of philosophical dispute <laughs> so any answer i give will be um contentious and uh yeah I would need to be allowed to, to qualify it. But I think the way that I typically think about philosophy is as a pursuit of wisdom, something like close to the original Platonic vision in certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, wisdom being a kind of understanding of um, first causes of, of, of what is good, what the ultimate structure of reality is like, but then an understanding of a whole in light of that. So, the goal is not just to to gain knowledge of these particular facts, like, right, you know, the universe came from God, but yeah. in understanding God and understand the relationship of creation to God 
having a kind of um, understanding of the whole and how it all hangs together mm. uh, such that, you know, mentally one can navigate various issues, but even practically um, one is attuned to reality such that they can sort of deftly navigate uh, the world in light of this wisdom. Now, you know, in, in the pursuit of wisdom, questions arise about uh, our prospects for gaining knowledge and understanding. Um, we need to understand what those things are and whether they're achievable and how they're achievable. And so epistemology, uh, the word itself actually translates as the study of knowledge, but it's really the study of successful cognitive contact with reality. Um, right. We have yeah. uh, of all forms, you know, plants can respond to stimuli in the environment, but they don't right. do so in a cognitive way. Humans have this unique ability to uh, form judgments about the world. Uh, think about things through the use of concepts um, when you string enough concepts together to get something that can be true or false, you have what we call a proposition. <laughs> and so then the question is, um, as, as we have judgments with propositional content right. that describe the world as being a certain way, um, you know, we don't want to hold those arbitrarily. So it seems like you need to have something like good reasons for holding it. Sometimes, um, those uh, reasons are strong enough to even constitute knowledge, uh, or we say that you have knowledge of the world. And so epistemology studies all of those things and sort of surrounding uh, questions. Yeah. Sounds very important. When you say <laughs> good reasons, do you have to be aware of the reasons and be able to articulate it? Well, um, that's a good question. That's that's going to be a matter of debate. I think that you need to be aware of the reasons on some level. Um, the way that I typically, at least with respect to a particular kind of status that we might call justification, mm -hmm. um, justification is something that was, was talked about really throughout the history of philosophy, but I think our current understanding of it kind of comes from Descartes and Locke. And it has to do with proceeding in accordance with your intellectual duties. Oh. Um, I think so. There are, um, you know, there are perhaps other, there are under, other understandings of this. Um, and there are other epistemic statuses that are valuable. But like, like what? Well, like what, what does it take to know something? Um, it, if you follow your epistemic duties, um, weighing your evidence correctly, that may give you justification for believing something, mm -hmm. but having justification for believing something, um, even if it's true, doesn't guarantee knowledge. You need something more than just justification and uh, true belief in order to get knowledge oh, okay. and whatever that is that you need that additional thing. You don't know what that extra thing is or do you have any ideas? Uh, so this is the <laughs> <heavier> problem. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Throw it out there, man. Very difficult. I, I, well, I don't know where I go on this. I'm either okay. inclined to say, no. uh, 
I think the best solution we have is probably the Howard Snyder solution, which is basically um, knowledge is true, justified belief. That's not lucky. <laughs> uh, that your justification uh, is appropriately connected gotcha. to the truth of your belief. Um, okay. Now, people call that a non-solution because it doesn't actually give you a substantive fourth condition on knowledge. Um, yeah, but I, but I, I don't necessarily think that makes it a false definition. Um, the alternative that I'm attracted to is just infallibilism about knowledge, just saying, well, the amount of justification required is, um, is enough to rule out any possibility of error. And so you just don't get Gettier cases arising. Wow. I, I don't know how much your audience knows about epistemology. So maybe what I said doesn't make any sense there at all, but, um, uh, you know, it's going to vary. Um, there's probably most people are struggling, uh, through this, but I feel like, um, the best way to proceed is just to kind of, uh, sometimes it's just to jump in and s start swimming it might feel a little bit like you're drowning, but sure. I mean, you know, it, it is the epistemology is uh, is is a crucial thing to try to get a handle on. And, you know, just so if you're if you're barely hanging on so far, don't worry. I think that there's going to be some clarity going forward because sure. we're going to talk about stuff like evidence, faith, um, eventually God. <laughs> and well, let's. Let's go back to you, um, you uh, Blake, the person. Uh, did you always know that you were interested in philosophy? Did you grow up thinking about philosophy, or did you get interested in that in college? Because you were a uh, philosophy major in college, right? Yeah, I was. So I, I suppose I thought about philosophy day ray before college, but not day <laughs> day. <detail. laughs> yeah, which, which means um, I I was doing philosophy all throughout middle school and high school with my family, with my friends. I was thinking philosophically, but I did not know what the discipline of philosophy was. I would never have called it philosophy. Um, I discovered yeah. at Pepperdine that what I had been doing was doing philosophy. Um, okay. Hmm. That When did you have I, that realization? Well, my freshman year, I had a, a British friend, Morton was his name, although he, being British, he said it, you know, Morton. I had <laughs> to repeat his name every time somebody asked it what it was. But, uh, and he said, Blake, I took this class with this guy, Caleb Clanton, uh, Introduction to Philosophy. And it just blew my mind. You have to take ethics with me next semester. Mm. And I said, you know, being a serious person, as as you pointed out at the beginning of the interview, I said, well, I want to live well. Yeah, I want to act rightly and wrongly. Uh, um, yeah. Maybe I should think about what a right. good life is like. Maybe I should think about some of these things more seriously. What was uh, your major at the time? Engineering. <laughs> I was. Uh, I mean, I in high school, I enjoyed everything. Um but I loved physics. I loved the wow. discovering the underlying principles of reality yeah. through physics. Wow. 
Wow. And uh, the rigor of mathematics. And I thought, well, engineering's just applied physics. It would just would be fit like <laughs> physics, but I'll just get a job after. Yeah. Uh, I've since discovered that was not the case, but okay. So I took this ethics class at Pepperdine, hmm. and immediately uh, it just it changed my life. I realized wow. um, that you know all of these things that the conversations that I had been having with my friends and family, um, other people were having these conversations. Uh, I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. I could learn from these other people. I could learn to do what I had been doing well <laughs> hmm. uh, in, a, in a rigorous way. Uh, and and through this process, um, my freshman year at Pepperdine, my faith was being rationalized in a good way, right? I was sort of okay. taking the philosophical things that I was learning and showing, uh, seeing how they were enriching and expanding uh, my understanding of God and Christianity. And I thought, man, uh, this has been so valuable to me over my time at Pepperdine. I want to help students walk through the same process um, and maybe wow. write things that, that help yeah. people go through that themselves. Yeah. So I switched over to philosophy. Did Caleb teach ethics? He did. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cal fact, Caleb, uh, Caleb poached you from, uh, from engineering. Yeah, my that's dissertation cool. was dedicated to Caleb and Mason. That's cool. Who really stoked my uh, Mason being the other uh, philosophy professor at the time who um, just introduced me to you know my love of philosophy. Yeah, Mason Marshall. Mason Marshall. What did you take from Mason? Lots: ancient, early modern, uh, aesthetics. That's cool. Cap, the senior capstone on uh, love. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was a famous one. A lot of people were talking about that class. And what did you take with Caleb? Ethics, Ethics philosophy of religion, introduction Ooh. to philosophy. Yeah. So wait, so you took okay. ethics, which is an upper level class. You took that as a, as a sophomore? I took that my freshman year before freshman. philosophy class. Yeah. You took ethics as a freshman. Wow. That's impressive. I was just, it was just planning to be an elective. So I, I wasn't sort of systematically approaching it. I think logic was my second philosophy class. Hmm. So you were a sophomore in that class? Yeah. Okay. Wow. So you came to Pepperdine in 07? That sounds That's right. right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that would have been your sophomore year, yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, I, know, I just ran. I, I ran into. I ran into uh, a couple people from that class recently in the last few years. I ran in at a bar. I ran into Johnny Christofferson. Do you remember him? Really? He was yeah. in that class. I remember because you and Caleb, uh, or Caleb in particular, wouldn't stop talking about Chris Christofferson. I know you. In this class and and actually i was not really, on pet sounds yeah i mean i i wasn't in the generation that really knew who chris christopherson was i just happened to know 
I don't know how I knew that. I think I just listened to country music or something. I mean, I grew up on country music, so maybe yeah. that's what it was. Although, uh, first question you, you I didn't asked even him have was, the best name in that class. Do you remember Nandor Kiss? Yeah, sure. What a name. Yeah, 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 like yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, Nandor, he went on to be a lawyer for the military. Um, and then uh, Donovan, by, yeah. by the way, Johnny Christopherson was, went on to law school. And, uh, when I ran into him at, at uh, Schmitz, JT Schmitz in Anaheim, it was, uh, like a Christmas party. We were having our Christmas party of the orange County gun owners at the same time he was having his with the, I think the prosecutors, uh, so the DAs and the stuff. So he was uh, in that office. I th no, or maybe it was his law firm. I can't remember. I probably screwed that up. I think I think it was a DA. I think he was in the prosecutor's office. And um, and yeah, it was it was it was funny running into him. Um, and then Donovan Brambola uh, helped me. I, I ran into him at the law school. I can't remember why I ran into him. I think I was writing my dissertation at the law library, uh, mm -hmm. doing the research at his law school, and um, I ran into him. So that was kind of funny. Actually, so he's he in law school now. No, no, he's he's graduated and he's in practice somewhere in Los Angeles County, I believe. Um, I'm not. I get the sense that he's like in the prosecutor's office, but I'm not sure about that. He might be doing something else, but. I, I, I see stuff now and again, like on social media, but, but the, the I mean, that, isn't that funny? Like a lot of, actually yeah. several lawyers came out of that class, several, like at I'm least five that I can think of. What's when that? I hear, I'm just, I'm always impressed when I hear about my, you know, our, my fellow students back at Pepperdine and the things yeah. they're doing. Um, yeah. They're doing some amazing stuff. Right. Uh, producing some great students out of that institution. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always love following up with people and, and checking in with them and seeing how they're doing. Sure. So you, now you teach, you got your PhD in philosophy at Baylor. Mm -hmm. um, and you teach at Hillsdale college mm -hmm. in Michigan. And is that in the United States or is that in Canada? Technically <laughs> far enough. It might as well be. You're it's way like, up there, right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cold up here. Um, yeah, I bet. Do you have snow on the ground? Right now, no. But okay. if you had asked me a day ago, yeah. So how is it teaching at Hillsdale? What do you like about Hillsdale? Uh, and then we'll get back to philosophy and God and stuff. <laughs> sure. Well, yeah, teaching at Hillsdale is fantastic. Is that I, your office behind you? This is, yeah. They get, Oh, cool. I'm not very important, but they gave me a, an awesome office. That's cool. Uh, which is fantastic. Um, I had um, a windowless office when I first arrived here. And the president, Dr. Larry Arn of the college, walked by one time. He had some important people around him. <laughs> and he poked his head into my office and looked around and he said, gentlemen, this is why God made junior faculty. <laughs> <laughs> but I moved up in the world. Um, that's cool. I'm in a nice office now, but, uh, yeah, I had no idea what I was getting into when I mm. got the job at Hillsdale college. Mm. I, um, 
I'm realizing in some ways, like my upbringing, I was unaware of vast parts of the world. The world is much richer and deeper place than you think. That's true for everyone, but it was especially true for me. Mm. And um, so I had, you know, heard the name Hillsdale College. I looked at the website. Yeah. uh, But I didn't have a sense of really what the place was all about Mm. um, until I got the job came here and was just immediately floored by what an incredible place it is. Um, Wow. Just, you know, filled with people that have a shared conception of, um, of the good of how Mm. liberal education fits into that. Um, You know, I think some large part, I think too, Dr. Arn, who really articulates for the students and the faculty and the staff, a kind of vision, mm-hmm. very Aristotelian vision, yeah, uh, of uh, yeah. eudaimonia and our shared pursuit of it, yeah. and um, so I just showed up, and all of a sudden I had all these students who, uh, you know, had read Nicomachean Ethics uh, wow. several times. Like you have to read it at least two or three times coming through here. Um, that were serious, that wanted to learn, were eager to engage with the great texts and the great minds of the Western tradition. I had colleagues, you know, I'm talking to my English professor colleagues about Neoplatonism and various esoteric aspects of the philosophical tradition. And they know it um, because, you know, the way that English history politics is done is uh, in a very philosophical way. Yeah. Uh, We're trying always to sort of, point the students back to that understanding of uh, the good and understanding of the whole in light of these disciplines. I mean, you know, even our math professors, they talk in their, in their courses about, you know, Platonism about numbers and, wow. and uh, the, the, the foundations of mathematics. And so how cool um, is that? It, it's a pretty amazing place. Um, you know, I want my kids to come here. Or, wow. and or nieces and nephews to that's come a here. Big deal. That's or a place big like deal. it, right? Um, so it's changed me being a part of it in good ways, I think. Um wow. stretched to my own philosophical um understanding of things uh in a in a good way. So uh really happy to be a part of Phil's what, College. What's your workload like there? We teach a three three. Although currently I have a Templeton grant um, uh, that is reducing that workload to just two two courses a semester. But 3.3 is the standard workload for... How long does that grant last? It's three years. We're in the second year of the grant right now. Okay. Cool. So what kind of classes do you... have you taught there and do you teach? Sure. So we all teach Western philosophical tradition, which is um, the core course. Um, Mm -hmm. The core is what at Pepperdine, they might've called general education requirements. Yeah. Uh, So every student has to take Western philosophical tradition and by the way, Western theological tradition. No kidding. Philosophy and theology. Every student gets it. Wow. And, uh, so the demand for that 
is quite high. So we have to offer 10 plus sections every semester. So most of us are teaching two sections of that every, every semester. Um, notice, by the way, I mean, this tells you something about Hillsdale. It's not introduction to philosophy. It's Western philosophical tradition because they want it to be a kind of historically oriented okay. walk through the great texts um, mm -hmm. sort of course. Okay. All right. Then um, I teach epistemology, metaphysics, philosophy of religion, 20th century analytic philosophy. Really? Basically, most of the contemporary survey courses in the core areas. Um, I've also offered specialty courses and uh, philosophy, science, and religion, and um, the problem of suffering, uh, various things of, the, of that sort, heaven yeah. and hell, um, heaven, hell, and in between. So Heaven, hell, is that a course called, what's what it's called? Yeah, that's what I called it. It's called heaven, hell, and in between? Wow. Cool. Do you, uh, do you believe that hell exists? Yes, I do. You're like, yeah, I hope, I hope that no one's in Michigan. it. Michigan. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I hope that no one's in it. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I don't, I don't know that. Um, I'm not confident that the scriptures commits us to saying that there are in fact humans in it as much as it's a real possibility for humans to be in it. Um, we can reject God and the consequence yeah. of that is hell. Um, right. you know, I hope, I hope that people don't. Yeah, um, me too. So. so what was your faith background like before you got into college? Um, because you do work in religious epistemology, which is a fancy schmancy way of talking about, uh, um, uh, taking a look at faith and the, uh, words we use like faith and evidence knowledge and stuff and um coming to an understanding of how those concepts apply um, yeah so well, what would you did did you grow up religious how would you characterize it i did i grew up um a christian in fact as i think um that the spirit for whatever reason has given me an extra dollop of faith in the sense that uh, I never really doubted God's existence. Really? Um, yeah. That was always apparent to me. Um, you know, there are definitely times when I encounter arguments that, um, you know, make me sit back and have a moment of, you know, anxiety about things. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of, you know, real sustained doubts. No, I, I've, I've not. I don't think that's typical necessarily, by the way. Nor right. do I think, um, that well, that's I was, I was, uh, I was a non-believer as a, a very young, like when I was a fetus yeah. <laughs> and, um, and then, and then I went through a non-believer part when I was an infant for a while. Yes. But uh, so I relate to, those aspects of your story. Uh, <laughs> so, probably part of my toddlerhood was was fairly pagan as well. Yeah. <laughs> at least from the stories I hear. At some point. Well, you know, not having a stance at all is not the same thing as 
withholding assent or certainly not disbelief. Sure. We'll forgive yeah. you. Okay. Thank you. Although Augustine does apologize for the sins, confess, right? The sins of his infancy. He does? And yeah, in the confessions. Like he talks about his his crying and demanding of milk and of other things. Oh. Uh, he confesses it as a kind of sin. It's interesting. It's been a while since I've seen that. Yeah. Well, uh, so anyways, I, I believed in God. Um, and there were always attempts to rationalize my faith. Um, I, I grew up in the Church of Christ, which Pepperdine is a Church of Christ school. Which is yeah. Why I went. Um, yeah, there is an there is a, a scholarly kind of tradition in the Church of Christ that wants you to use reason. And um, where where and did you I, grow up in the United States? I'm assuming Missouri. it was the United States. Missouri, huh? yeah. Kansas Missouri, City, okay. Missouri. Yeah. Kansas City, did you say? Mm-hmm. Kansas City. Not Kansas. Kansas City, Missouri. I'm glad you said that because it always confused me as a kid. I was like, wait. <laughs> Why do you got to do that? Yeah, well, we had the name first. Me. What's that? We had the name first. And then oh, okay. Kansas was a latecomer to the game. Okay. In, in fact, actually, Kansas City, Kansas, I hear, uh, this is the rumor going around the, among Missourians, uh, saw the successful Kansas City, Missouri, and so created their own city on the other side of the river and also called it Kansas City in hopes that some of the people coming to Kansas City, Missouri might wander past <laughs> that and end up in their Yeah. So we had yeah. the original. Okay. Well, I grew up in Colorado City, Kansas, so okay. very similar. <laughs> just, um, just kidding, everybody. I grew up in Colorado. It would just be just as confusing, though. I mean, like, but um, so, sure, sure. so you grew up uh, going to church. How many times you go to church a week? Uh two to three. Two um, to three times a week. We would do Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and then uh, for periods we do Wednesday night as well. Okay. Uh, and was there a strong youth presence there? Were, were there? Yeah, was there, there, were, there was. a good youth program. Yeah, well, I was grew up in really small churches, so I mean okay. we had a youth minister, um, but it wasn't the big, you know, evangelical pizza party all the time, um, youth group experience. Um, what we did is we read our Bibles a lot, um, a very careful study of scripture. And that's one thing that I really appreciate about my growing up in the restoration tradition, right? In the church of Christ is just instilling a love and appreciation for scripture. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting though, like the, the, while it is scholarly in certain ways, there is a kind of, um, hesitation about philosophy specifically within yes. the church of Christ. Okay. Um, although, you know, Caleb, who we already mentioned is working to change some of that. Yes, he is. So, I think he teaches now at another church of Christ school. It's been a while since I've talked to him, but yeah, it, uh, uh, he teaches at. Uh, uh, Lipscomb. Yes, that's right. Lipscomb in Nashville, I think. Yeah. I've written a couple of things for him, including a contribution to a book on restoration and philosophy. Um, oh. uh, 
sort of drawing out some of the common sense aspects yeah. of, of uh campbell yeah so, yeah yeah so, but, so okay so the philosophy part really wasn't did you feel free as a kid to ask questions that were now you know are philosophical it's a good question we're being kind of anachronistic we're going back and looking back and seeing were they yeah. friendly to philosophy ish stuff I don't have or the best theology. memory of all okay. this. I feel like some of it's speculation, but um, sure. Uh, well, it might have been that you did so many drugs back then, uh, Blake, in in Missouri and at Pepperdine, and be. in Waco. Just kidding. Constant. I mean, that's what you do in philosophy, right? You sit around yeah. and smoke. And that's well. That's true. Ask big questions. Yeah, I can um, feel disorienting. <laughs> Yeah, so um, the would, would you say it was anti-intellectual? I guess is kind of what I'm getting at. Aspects of it were, um, but not necessarily intellectual in general. But they're just a, a very narrow understanding of what that looked like. So, for instance, I remember going to faith camp and learning to refute the evils of evolution, and it was just sort of, you know, dogmatic that like evolution cannot fit with a faithful reading of scripture it can't fit with the christian tradition um and as i sort of came to pepperdine and really just started learning more about the world i, I realized there are lots of assumptions there about how we're supposed to be reading scripture mm -hmm. what a kind of you know faithful engagement with scripture looks like what yeah. hermeneutic principles you have to use in reading it um that had closed me off to any sort of you know, Christian thought um, that would have maybe countenanced evolution as a part of God's plan for, of creation. Yeah. Um, and so I realized that, wow, actually like my understanding of Christianity is quite narrow. Like for instance, I had no idea about the early church fathers because, you know, why would you read Augustine <laughs> instead of just reading scripture? We just right. read the Bible all the time. Yeah. And there wasn't an appreciation necessarily for the way in which the the intellectual, the Christian intellectual tradition can enrich our understanding of scripture in ways yeah. that just reading the text itself can. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that being said, when it comes to scripture, though, I mean, people were serious scholars of Hebrew and of history and archaeology. Like you saw great work like that being done in the churches of Christ. So it's not anti-intellectual entirely gotcha intellect is important yeah but it was sort of confined by certain fundamentalist assumptions hmm. uh, that 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 made it difficult to sort of appreciate the full bloom of the christian tradition mm -hmm. um, that that maybe hopefully that's clarifying sure yeah I, I get it i get what you're saying yeah um now, when you got to Pepperdine, you obviously felt free to go philosophical. Did you ever have a sense that these this was a threatening enterprise for your um, faith? Yes and no. So I, I remember the moment. Really, what started for me was that, that I came to believe in evolution. Hmm. Uh, I remember reading a book. 
uh, that for the first time sort of presented uh, the some of the basic evidence for evolution. Um, and I had always sort of heard the the presentation of you know the straw man presentation of of evolution growing up, and uh, I was just convinced by the evidence. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in my dorm room. <laughs> at book in hand on, uh, in my chair and, uh, sort of like in shock thinking, I believe in evolution. <laughs> like, what am I supposed to do with this? Right. But my first thought was not, okay. So the Bible's false and Christianity's out. It's, but I know that God exists. I know right. that Jesus is God. So how do I make sense of this? Yeah. And, and it ended up enriching um, my faith. Now, at the end of my time at Pepperdine, I remember sort of with zeal digging into all of these different issues. Let's think about the incarnation. Let's think about the Trinity. And I remember, uh, I think it was the, the incarnation specifically, not quite being able to understand how this particular model of the incarnation was supposed to work and um, having some unresolved questions and beginning to feel myself doubt, well, did maybe we mess this up? Um, and thankfully, I mean, again, the spirit has, I think, has guided me. Um, at that moment, I realized it's good to uh, philosophize, but why should I expect to be able to figure it all out myself? Um, if I trust that, you know, God is working, say, in scripture and the formation of the canon and bringing these texts together, um, why should I also think that God is working in the church and, say, the early councils to um, come up with these formulations uh, of the incarnation, of the Trinity? Um, and I kind of just realized, all right, there's a limit here. Sometimes you do need to just trust uh, if you've got enough good reason to think that these are authorities, um, maybe I just need to trust that God guided them and that they got it right. Um, even if I don't fully understand how it works. And so I think that was a healthy kind of chastening, um, because, you know, certainly it is good to seek to rationalize your faith, but doing so with a, a dose of humility of understanding that, sure. You know, we don't always have to figure out every aspect ourselves before we, um, you know, we can reasonably uh, assent to it. What was your, what was the final nail in the coffin for, well, what's the opposite of evolution? Um, Creation? What, What was it? What was the turning point for you in that moment? Do you recall? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I mean, it depends on what you mean by evolution too. I mean, that, that a lot of, I, I find that there's a lot of unclarity when people talk about evolution, Sure. just as much as there is uh, the way people approach scripture oftentimes without thinking the, of the, the other options uh, that might be faithful rendering of, of the tradition or the text. Right. Well, and like, I wouldn't want to contrast it with creation either, because I absolutely believe God created the world, created life. I I use this as an example. Some of my students, like 
did God create you? Yeah. Well, your mom and dad might've had something to say about it too. Sure. Are you, are you saying that your mom and dad did not engage in certain activities and that yeah. there weren't certain biological processes going on there? Mm-hmm. Well, no, yes, those, th- those things happened. They would say, but God still created me. You mean, so he created you through this natural process. Um, yes. Well, I'm open to the idea that God did that for, um, for life more generally. So I, in terms of what I mean by evolution, I guess I just mean that over time um, through genetic modification and some uh, various pressures, including natural selection, uh, we got a kind of diversity of forms of life. Um, and and uh, <clears throat> I think that there were many things, but one of the when, things- When that- you say genetic modification, you don't mean random mutation? Well, it um, it would be random mutation. We have to understand what you mean by random, right? Uh, because I just the, I just mean random. <laughs> because the sense in which it has to be random from the point of view of like evolutionary theory is actually compatible with, um, say, like you know God uh, orchestrating certain mutations to occur at certain times. Like Planiga is really good on this in his where the conflict really lies, but mm-hmm. um, it, all, it, all it means in terms of randomness is that there's not a kind of physical mechanism that looks for quote unquote, like adaptive genes and then tries to bring those about. Right. So, yeah, I, I think that random genetic mutation plays a role. Part of, I think in advancements of the evolutionary theory is that we've discovered that's not the only one. Um, there are all sorts of ways in which variety can occur within genes and, you know, the natural selection can take, take over and, and act on all of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think also I'm not, I need to ask my biologist friends, but yeah, uh, you know, it's complicated. There's more than just natural selection that's factoring in here, but, okay. um, but I think one of the things that really, um, there's like a Gettier, there's a fourth, there's another condition. There's like a third condition, I guess. So they tell me, I'm like I said, I'm not a, so random mutation. Uh, that's not, that's not what we normally think of as random. Um, plus natural selection, survival of the fittest at the mm-hmm. macro level. And then, so you have something at genetic level, something at the macro level, plus something else that's working. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to have to punt on this one in terms of, uh, how do you understand what a species is? I'm interested in that. Do you, have you thought about this? No, not that much. I, okay. I think that's interesting that, that I mean, uh, that is an interesting question. I just like to raise it because you know, there's all sorts of interesting little, I, I, I like to get people thinking about this in my classes too. Like, for example, think about the fact that we know that um, humans are a f- finitely old, right? Mm-hmm. We, we Humans have not been around forever. <laughs> so, so you came from your parents and I came from mine. 
and then they came from their parents and uh, people might get a little uncomfortable about that like nowadays just because you're talking about a man and a woman right we understand those terms historically and um and and going all the way back there's no case in which um besides the incarnation of jesus there's no case in which uh someone in your genetic line and jesus is not in my genetic line because he didn't reproduce um but in no case that there is there any variation from that at all and there's all it always takes two to reproduce humans mm -hmm. because they're not finitely old the set humans there's got to be a first member of the set and so because uh, because it requires reproduction it requ there there has to be two members of that set that are of the opposite sex if you will so far we're consistent with genesis so far yeah <laughs> if you permit me some off-the-cuff speculation this isn't my area of expertise so right just philosophizing together here but yeah um so the big one of the biggest questions that still remains i think in understanding how evolution fits in with christianity is adam and eve and the historical adam right of course you have a variety of attempts to um well, if, if it's the first human, and actually the first two humans, because there have to be two to reproduce, but if it's a first human, or uh, then that human had to come from a non-human, because that's Plus, what it means to be first. God, yeah, that's yeah. What so it means to be first. What, I mean, one of the so. big, one of the big going um, theories is that there was a, a you know, a point in evolutionary history where yeah. there was a pretty a significant change that maybe involved some kind of um, divine um, intervention or perhaps just uh, you know through divine orchestration like a a significant leap in abilities such that now you have um, individuals with like a fully rational soul that we would identify as you know, in the image of God, um, yeah. the first two humans. And um, so the image of God is important for you to preserve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, scripture is, <laughs> and scripture talks <laughs> about the image of God. It's kind of well, a big so, deal, but I'm okay with like God, yeah. prior to that. So I, I'm, I'm inclining towards kinds of neo Aristotelianism. Right. And like, on neo-Aristotelianism, the big levels are of reality are when you get to a new substantial form. And so you have the elemental level where they have forms. And then, you know, you can take those elements and craft them into artifacts and you get a kind of new form, but it's not a, a new substantial form. There's not um, the, uh, the same uh, sort of reality to the form of like a plant or a, a, an animal or a human uh, that belongs to the artifact. And so the levels of reality where you get like emerging genuinely new uh, kinds of things are you have the elemental level, the plant level, the sensing and perceiving level of animals, and then the rational level of humans. 
And so uh, I'm sort of comfortable saying, I mean, I'd have to think through the implications of this, but that in terms of species prior to, you know, if they're sensing and perceiving animals, um, maybe their difference is just a matter of degree in terms of, um, you know, what they can do, what they're like, um, what they're. You're you know, saying the, that's an option for yeah, what the image of God means? Well, is to it, how to deal with matter species, of degree? what you can say is that for like lower non-human animals, um, the differences between non-human animals is much more one of degree. Oh, but right. When right. you get to humans, you get a whole new category, like a new yeah, level okay. of reality. I gotcha. I gotcha. Where there's all of a sudden a, yeah. a step up. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I totally get you. And I'm totally, I totally agree with you on that. Um, that the image of God, uh, what does that mean? What, what, why is that so, important to preserve? There are not just from scripture. But... It, and again, it, you're asking me to talk about my, not my areas <laughs> of expertise. I'm happy to well, talk about We're going to, you know, grain of salt. This is, uh, I, I didn't expect you to bring up evolution, but I thought it would be good to, to chase it down a little bit because, because we're kind of inching back, I think, um, to the present. Um, sure. so we're thinking about the archaic past and what is it that makes people special? And I'm not sure we can ignore that question. Uh, I'm not saying we wanted to, but but I think it's it's actually kind of front and center for religious epistemology and and just religion in general because uh, yeah, what we're doing with in in co or using our cognitive abilities is something unique to yeah humans. Well, so, also just from a rights bearing perspective and politics, and from a responsibility perspective and politics. So the rights and responsibilities are two sides of the same coin, probably. Yeah. So I would say three things about the uh, image of God. You can say more, but yeah. as I understand it, um, some people see the image of God in terms of having certain capacities, abilities. For instance, we can reason, we can uh, make free choices, we can engage in creative behavior, um, things, capacities by virtue of which we are more godlike. Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore in the image of God. The second interpretation of that, as I understand it, is a, a kind of, uh, the image of God is a role that humans are supposed to play in creation. So maybe a, like a foreign king, if you conquer a land, you might put your image bearer in that land to serve as your authority within that domain. Mm -hmm. uh, they are your voice. They speak with your voice. They rule over the people in your stead. And humans are given that sort of God-ordained role in creation as yeah. the image bearers of God. Now, I think those are related because mm -hmm. we're only able to right. play the role of God's image bearer by virtue of possessing those rational capacities and freedom and creativity and, and those other sorts of things. Um. So I think those two could be knit together. Um, yeah. I have more to say that gets much more theological, but um, <laughs> I'll just hint at this. 
So if you have a kind of doctrine of theosis or deification in terms of our final hope being uh, a kind of transformation into the likeness of God, um, an elevation of ourselves beyond uh, sort of mere human capacities to, to really fully participate as much as is possible for any creature while still being a creature and not, not God himself to participate in the life of the Trinity, mm -hmm. then there has to be a kind of openness to re like receiving the divine mm -hmm. that humans have, because we can't be, um, you know, we can't be transformed into something that we don't have the potentiality in some respect already to become without just being destroyed. If we didn't have the potential to become divine already built within us, then God couldn't make us divine without just destroying us and replacing us. I mean, because you already said it, because I was listening carefully to what you said, but in case someone maybe missed it, you said, while still being a creature and not God. Right. That's what you yes. said. We so become like you, God. I did not miss that because I was listening very carefully for it. Yeah. You don't mean becoming God. You mean um, developing your full potential as an image bearer of God and being sanctified. Would you say that? Would is that the word yes. you'd use? Is that the, the concept? That's right. But the Christian hope, I, I think you see in a lot of the early church fathers, is that what we actually do is, you know, we we become enfolded into the life of the Trinity in a way that, you know, our minds are expanded, right? Like right now, maybe I can only hold, I can only do so much, think of so many things at one time. Sure. Could God increase our mental capacities? I hope so. <laughs> such that we could know more about the world, Speaking understand for myself. And in doing so, we would become something that is yeah. uh, greater than sure. humanity as currently yeah. gotcha. uh, as it's currently arranged. So that's what I'm talking about. But if that's the case, if that's possible for humans, then we have to have within us this kind of ability to become, you know, like God, not God himself, but to become like God. And that has to always already be a part of our nature. God had to make us with that. Sure. Um, and so that I think could be a part of what it means for us to be in the image of God. Yeah. So we're, we're called to be Christ-like. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. But I would mean a lot by that. Okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, now, I mean Christ is I, united I, with the Father. Uh, yeah. Well, okay. That That's Trinity talk. But, man, I just wanted to say this about evolution. I think that the threat is real. The threat, depending on how you de define evolution, the threat is real to the image of God. Because... Um, when you, when you go back to the first human or, you know, the first two humans, the first human either, well, first of all, had to come from a non-human. That's just what it means to be first, right? The first, whatever has to, the first, anything in a series, uh, there's gotta be some reason for it, right? Um, the first domino going back, it couldn't be another domino, that that because that that's then that wouldn't be the first domino 
but uh so then there's a couple different options i mean i'm just really quickly one option is that the the materialistic view of of evolution which i know you're you you do not support you don't believe in but the 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 standard view that's taught in public schools mm-hmm. or it's supposed to be taught in public schools i think that's what people want taught not people but um certain activists want this version taught and i think it is the version that's typically taught is is the version that um provides no causal support no no causal relationships to anything besides what's in nature right so you have a lower and i'm going to use the word lower quotation marks it's a lower story we come from that the first human comes from something some species that's lower mm-hmm. in advancement or whatever or the biblical story seems to say doesn't say how but it says that that the first human came from something higher right something not human so uh, it seems like the only way you get the image of God stuff and the, and the properties that I think of as for human beings as being essential, given our nature, no matter what an individual's capacities are at a given time, whether you're incapacitated or you're a fetus and you haven't developed yet, the not whatever the actualized capacities at a given time, I should say. Yeah, because they have the capacity. Yes. They have the, the could soul. be impaired. They have a rational yeah. soul. Or it could be that they're just too very young, you know, and haven't yeah. hasn't had to develop it. But that there's got to be some kind of metaphysical basis that's beyond what you get in just mere nature. And if God exists, there is no such thing as mere nature. Does that sound a lot of, I right. agree with so a lot far. of what you're saying there. Yeah. Okay. Um, although I would say what we need is to, that the understanding of mere nature mm-hmm. that you've just given there is one that arises in the early modern period and a kind of mechanistic philosophy of nature. And that's the problem. Okay. Um, that like, if you, if we return to a richer understanding of nature, then some of those, um, the concerns might be alleviated. Um, well, you're already like, talking about souls. You were talking about souls, yeah. like plants which, which having for, a soul. For for you know Aristotelians, right? Like the soul is a part of nature in Aristotle's yes. physics. Right, he's talking about the soul as a part of his scientific, like physics about the world. So, so and tell uh, folks like uh, what a soul is for a plant to have a soul. What does that mean? Yeah. So a soul when you, when you kill the the carrots and ha- make your stew, the carrots go to heaven. <laughs> it doesn't mean you have an eternal soul, right? Or, or a rational soul. Um, uh, what people typically call a soul today would be something closest to what Aristotle would call a rational soul. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, it's a little bit complicated. Um, you have yeah. to understand that for Aristotle. The, the term matter, which is really taken from Aristotle, it, it's Aristotle's term, and then later people will uh, will change its understanding. But yeah. is a kind of um, potentiality. It it's uh, 
an unactualized um, power to enter into or persist in various states of being. And um, so you can never get matter just by itself. It always has to have a form, which is the actuality, the actualization of the matter mm -hmm. um, with a particular structure or set of properties or powers. And can you uh, give an example just to. Yeah. So um, you said you know, there's ne never just mere matter, just like mere stuff. Well, because matter always has a shape. It always has a position. Uh, Is that consistent with chemistry? Like um, you, you wouldn't just see some stuff laying over there. It's, it's got some kind of. Even elements. You dig into it, you get elements. Is that what you mean? Uh, by form? Even atoms and molecules have structure. Right. They've got properties. They've got um, certain um, a certain form to them. So and, if Aristotle uh, knew about the periodic table elements, do you think he would say those are forms? He would say that each element has its own unique form. Okay. Yeah. So just like he thought there were four elements, earth, air, fire, wind, Mm -hmm. uh, or earth, air, um, fire, water, um, he would conclude that there are some hundred of elements, uh, as the modern periodic table says, uh, each with its own form that gives it certain proclivities, certain characteristic ways of acting. Which is basically what chemistry studies, right? Yeah. You mess around right. with this stuff, you figure out the potentialities. Mm -hmm. You're understanding the form of the various elements and what their telos is, what they're right. directing. Okay. Uh, a telos means their their it's their purpose. So it's really the goal or the end to yeah. which they're driving. Now, the thing is with a plant, you have a very special kind of form yeah. because that form engages in living activities. It like collects sunlight and through photosynthesis converts it into glucose that can be used for energy, right? It um, draws in water and uses mm -hmm. the minerals and things that it collects for the purposes of uh, of striving towards its telos. And it does yeah. so in a, in a way that's unique to living things. So any form of a living entity, Aristotle is going to call a soul. Right. But then there are levels of souls. So <laughs> yeah. plants just have a nutritive soul that can engage in growth and nutrition. Uh, animals have a nutritive and a sensing and perceiving soul. So they can perceive things, they can have desires. Yeah. But then only humans have, and if you're uh you know, uh if you're a Christian, then also angels. Um hmm. you have rational souls. Right. Right. Um that are a special kind of, of soul for, for angels. Maybe they just have the rational part for humans. We also have a nutritive and sensing perceiving part, um, which is part of what makes us humans that we're, we're so animals. We're not, uh, if someone's listening to this and they, they are a Bible Christian. And it seems redundant to me to say that like, a, you know, as if there's a yeah, different nowadays, but, sadly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes you have to say things redundantly, like instead of saying uh, Manhattan is an island, you have to say Manhattan is an island completely surrounded by water, um, as Martin Diamond used to say. But, you know, you have um, talked about Aristotle quite often 
and we know that Aristotle predates the New Testament. Why do you keep going back to Aristotle specifically? Like, what if I was just a, a Bible person and I don't understand why you keep going back to Aristotle? Um, sure. What's what is it about Aristotle? Is it just kind of like some kind of cult that you're in? Like, <laughs> yeah. You well, get, I like you know, Plato yeah. even more than I like Aristotle. So, you know, there, mm. there's that, but, um, there's Mason's influence on him. Yeah, that's true. Actually. He did get to me early. Um, so it's not a bad I influence suppose this does transition us in a way back to religious epistemology, because there's a question of how much of, um, God, how much of the nature of the good, how much about the providential ordering of God's creation and his intention, uh, his purpose for humanity, his purpose for the world is available to us through reason mm. alone, um, as opposed to requiring special revelation in the form of, say, scripture. Yeah. So people like Aquinas, who's very Aristotelian, um, but Aquinas is a Christian, right? Mm-hmm. Um and really, not just Aquinas, Augustine, the whole medieval and early patristic tradition, with some exceptions, but largely um, they they had confidence in the ability of reason to discern things uh, about God and about his providential order in reality, the moral order, the moral law, etc. Um, I would argue that that's even in the scripture itself. You have Paul in Romans one talking about um, how the things of God are evident, uh, are made evident to people through creation, that his divine attributes have been known through the things that he has been made. And so they are without excuse. I think that's important, right? Because it's people have this knowledge and it's enough that we can actually hold people accountable to God and to the moral law based solely on the knowledge that they have of God, not through scripture, but just through man's natural capacities to look at the world and to, to determine what is true. Hmm. And I have students all the time who come in and study Plato and Aristotle and they leave, well, that section thinking, my goodness, these people who lived before Christ came to conclusions that in many ways are so similar to the things that I see revealed in scripture. Now, I always have to impress upon them. uh, There are differences. There are important differences. Mm. So you will see, for instance, in Plato, a kind of uh, uh, downgrading of the material world in a way that isn't present in scripture. And so you you see a kind of escapism. And so you can see like the temptation towards Gnosticism, say in the early church, right? Mm-hmm. Which comes from some of these Greek traditions. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful because Plato is not Jesus. Aristotle is not Jesus. Right. But what they show is that reason is largely consonant with right. things that we learn through reason are not uh, obliterated through scripture Rather, scripture builds upon and expands upon and goes beyond what we can know through reason. Um, Aquinas's sort of phrase is grace builds on nature. Now, these guys, these this Plato and Aristotle uh, cult, 
<laughs> no, no, just kidding. Uh, but I like them at Hillsdale, so it is a bit of a cult. These, these guys, no, these guys. Well, I'm a part of the cult, just FYI. Sure. sure. Um, they are extremely legit examples of people connecting with reason. There's obviously some reason they stand out, right? It's not because God inspired them or, you know, they're part of scripture that was preserved and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Their, their writings stand out for purely natural reasons and enough people can connect with them that they valued them and passed them down. Is that something? They are considered to be the greatest philosophers of, of, how do you explain them? Why, like, why were they like that, and other people weren't? Uh, why was like, the, yeah, the like if the, if everybody has reason, then why are these guys so special? Well, I mean, everybody can run, but not everybody can run as fast as uh, Usain Bolt. Um, you know, you you can have some okay. people who are, but but actually, I I want to like they stand out because that. of their excellence in this faculty. Yeah. But I want to I want to nuance that by I think there's a myth of the kind of lone genius where um, you get one person who's really really smart and he just figures it out. Yeah, um, I don't think intellectual achievements work that way. Intellectual achievements are are very often the result of a tradition of an entire culture. Okay, that yeah. has laid. Uh, the soil and the groundwork for yeah. people like Plato and Aristotle to bloom. So right, right, think about right. this, right? Is it just a coincidence that like, you know, 20 of the greatest philosophical minds in history all happen to live in ancient Athens hmm. or in the surrounding areas? Is it a coincidence that in the Renaissance in Florence, Italy, uh, you know, you have born within 50 years, like Dante and Machia, Machiavelli and like all of and Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and all of these great people. Yeah. Or how about the American founding? Right. That this generation of great men uh, arises at this time. Yeah. That's because there is a culture yeah. that that uh, elevates, you know, that educates its young men um, and women nowadays. Right. Sure. Uh, to, uh, I mean, I know what you're talking about when you say that word. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That allows them to um, <laughs> blossom into greatness, right? And so I think something happened. Well, look ancient- at yourself. Look at you're you're standing in a tradition. Yeah. Y- you wouldn't be able to do this podcast if it wasn't for Baylor University, Pepperdine University, uh, Hillsdale College. A lot of people gave sacrificially for for those kinds of productions of those books behind you and the and the facilities and the libraries and the people. Or even have just the time. like my parents, you know, we were encouraged to mm. read lots and to think and to. Yeah. That's uh, a huge thing. We were educated, and so yeah, you get these going back to your church that which which valued yeah. reading the scriptures. That's right. Precisely. And so, you know, I look at Plato and Aristotle and I think, man, those were great men, Mm. but they were allowed to be such great thinkers because there was something that happened in ancient Greece, a set of assumptions, confidence and the ability of reason to peer into the ultimate nature of reality that allowed them to do that. 
And the tragic thing, Luke, is I'm sure you talk about this a lot, but is that, you know, we've lost that culture in America, except they died. Oh, I thought you were going to say the tragic thing is that Plato died and Aristotle died. Sorry. (laughs) No, I mean, part of what we're trying to do at Hillsdale is to rekindle that, at least within, you know, um, more and more of the population um, to kind of create this culture that allows for excellent men and women to rise up to be our to be our leaders. I taught, I taught the American founding last semester. And, uh, so what you're saying is really resonating with, with me. And I, I find that students just have no idea what you're talking about as far as the founding goes, um, until they, they encounter this stuff and they have to really wrestle with it you know, like why they did what they did. They were thoughtful people. They wrote down what they thought. (laughs) There's a great book called um, the fame and the founding fathers by Douglas Adair. And it's a, it's a series of essays. It's actually a particular essay in this book of essays called fame and the founding fathers. And um, he makes the point that they wanted to be famous in a, in a sense that we it's not the shallow TikToky influencer sense that we have Glory. today. They they wanted to be famous for for deep reasons. Um and that's why they wrote so much stuff down, because they wanted to have a record of what and why, so mm-hmm. that we could piece it together later. And that's why we know so much about the foundings because they gave us a glut of information. And actually, sadly, a lot of it is gone and we will never get it back, but we have so much of it that we do understand quite a bit. Um, so yeah, to all to your point, let's get, let's get back into that, that outline that you so graciously provided me of some of the talking points that we could talk about. Um, sure. We yeah, can always do let, one let's pull two. that up. <laughs> I'm gonna, well, I'm going to pull that up. I don't know about you, but um, so here's the first one. Good religious epistemology is grounded in good epistemology simpliciter. Would you like to develop that? Sure. I agree, by the way. I totally agree with what you're yeah. saying. I love that, that you said that right away. Well, good. Yeah. I mean, um, so in order to be a good Christian philosopher, yeah. you need to be a good philosopher, right? Um, and you just need to be able to think well uh, about these various topics. And the oil um, has to be changed. <laughs> Right. I mean, and that doesn't mean there aren't going to be some cert- certain things about, you know, that, that Christianity reveals to us that changes how you think about certain issues. That's mm-hmm. absolutely true. I don't go into philosophy and say, okay, I'm writing a philosophy paper now. I need to try and forget that Jesus is God when mm-hmm. I'm writing this paper. Mm-hmm. It does inform the way that I do philosophy. But um, if you want to ask a question like, how do I know that God exists or can I know that God exists? You, you probably should try and figure out what knowledge is in general first yeah. um, and, and just do good epistemology. And then you can apply it to the specific case of 
belief in God. And so, <clears throat> so you got to know the conditions of knowledge first and be good at that for like ordinary stuff. If you're going to have any idea of how to apply knowledge concepts to like a really tricky case, serious so. stuff, like did Jesus right uh, uh, raise again from the dead? Right, exactly. And so I am not in my work focused on knowledge specifically. Um, okay. So as we kind of started talking at the beginning of the podcast about different kinds of things, the the status that I'm interested in is, you know, given all of the information that I have about the world, what am I justified in believing? Mm. What, you know, if I'm trying to pursue truth and avoid falsehood, um, strike a, a kind of balance there between like, I don't want to miss out on the truth, but I also don't want to just believe anything willy nilly and get duped. Yeah. So given all of the evidence available to me, how do I balance those things? Um, to come to a kind of stance, a measured stance that is the most reasonable to take in light of all of the available information. Now, let's say I do that. I have what we would call a justified belief. Whether that belief constitutes knowledge depends on some other things that are outside of my control. Mm -hmm. So my approach is I'm just going to focus on the things that I can control, Yeah, which is to believe in accordance with the evidence. <clears throat> and, you know, we can talk about whether I know I'm, I'm also interested in that. Yeah. Um, but most of my work has been focused on uh, is believing in God justified for us given all the thing available information. Does it make sense to believe in God? Now, I'm going to play an atheist, okay? Sure. I can't believe you believe in God. That's like a fairy tale. <laughs> you seem smart. I, you sounded smart right up until you started talking about God. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I haven't lost respect for you because you, you seem like a nice guy, but you're just a nice guy. And that's about all I can say about that. I don't want to disrupt... But I don't want to disrupt this story because obviously it does something good for you. Sure. It's worked out for you. And, uh, you know, but I just, you know, definitely don't want to, you, you or your kind to get anywhere near a public school. <laughs> and uh, in fact, the public square in general, like just pretty much just like, don't ever go in the public square. <laughs> yeah. And you probably you, feel the same way about Plato. You don't have knowledge. And, yeah. Sure. And most of the great minds throughout the past who all, who all believed the same thing. Believe <laughs> in God. But, uh, well, I mean, that was then. I mean, now we have Darwin. We have. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, science says, you know, science now talks. Science is a guy. Um, yeah, anyone, first anyone now, it's just science. It's like Cher or Bono is just science. Any of the firm principle of when with the firm principle of truth inside his breast cannot believe in God, as she <laughs> says. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. What's your first foot forward in that conversation? Let's say I was really receptive to evidence. Like if I said, so you you I was really surprised you said you believed in evidence is important for knowledge. Do you believe that we can know that God exists or one can know? 
I do think we can now. Yes. Okay. Um, so that's a pretty big claim. So then you must think that we can have knowledge or uh, based on evidence, good reasons. That's right. So what are, what would be some good evidences, some good reasons? Good. So um, we don't have this, to go really in depth, but maybe just what comes yeah. to your mind first. Well, and and so obviously if I'm in a conversation with an atheist, I might approach it differently than if I'm talking with a Christian who's okay. about these things. Um, I'm going to pretend to be a Christian uh, after this then. Sure. Just but just kidding. but I, I think Christian. what we would start to do is we would ask, okay, like what is the nature of evidence? First of all, mm -hmm. um, you know, you presumably think you're justified in believing that there's an external world. So, yeah. you know, that there is in fact a world around you filled with trees and other people and um, all sorts of things like that. What's your evidence for that? And we, we, we could, we could have a, a just a, a, again, good religious epistemology starts with good epistemology. So what is our evidence for believing in things in general? We are in the second point. I love how you did that. You went straight into our foundational evidence, basic sources from which our justification arises are appearances or seemings. Yes. So I think when you get down to it, yeah. like the ultimate evidence that we have about the world always comes back to experience, right? We have certain experiences of the world. And I, by experience, I mean something broadly construed. I don't just mean sensory experience. I mean, uh, like a purported encounter with reality where something seems true to you. Yeah. And so this could be, for instance, when you consider a mathematical theorem. Okay. And you, you know, uh, is it the case that if, you know, that one plus one equals two, is it the case that if A is bigger than B and B is bigger than C, then A is bigger than C. And you consider that before your mind. And what happens is you're often struck by this sense of obviousness, <laughs> it is evident to you that that is the truth. And you feel yourself inclined to just say, duh. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's true. Yeah. Well, that's a kind of experience of the world. You might call that an intuition. Okay. Uh, you also have perceptual intuition. experiences. You also have memories mm -hmm. uh, or, or memory appearances or seemings where Seemings, by the way, is just a fancy word for appearances. Um, people just use the word appearances for all sorts of things. So the term seemings kinds of lets me focus in on this particular understanding of what they are. Yeah. They're these mental states in which you think of something, right? So you have some content before your mind and it feels true to you. Um, gotcha. So, you know, you might ask me like, did you eat breakfast this morning? And I consider, and it seems to me that I did eat breakfast this morning mm -hmm. and eggs and sausage, uh, maybe too much information, but you wanted no, to know. I want more information. Did you have toast? <laughs> no toast. Does it Although seem my wife did make some toast. Toast. It does not seem to me that <laughs> it seems to me that I didn't have toast, which is why I believe that I didn't. Yeah. Sometimes you have to slow a little bit down because what you're saying is you got to really pay attention to the, the, the phrase you said was it feels true to you. And typically when people, ordinary people talk about whether they had breakfast or not, they go, yeah, I, I, I you know, did you have toast? Uh, no, 
I didn't have to. You don't say, you don't fill it in with, well, it, it feels true to me that I didn't have toast. Um, you know, that's not how people typically talk. They skip that part. But what you're saying is whether you skip it or not, because you don't have time to say it or you don't have the energy to say it or you just don't want to say it, you skip it not because it's not there, but just to save time. Exactly. No, I, I, that's actually a great point. So, I mean, even like scientific evidence, you might say, right? Um, you know, what's your evidence for this theory? Well, I performed this experiment and the meter, you know, read this certain number. Hmm. Geiger counter was at a hundred. <laughs> okay. And you might sort of stop there for practical purposes. But if we really ask about your evidence in that case, we would say, well, how did you know the Geiger counter read a hundred? Well, I had a perceptual experience that presented to me this state of affairs and it felt authentic, Mm -hmm. felt real to me. It seemed true. Mm -hmm. And um, so when you really get down to it, all of our beliefs are based on these experiences that feel true. And this is true for everything, including science, including mathematics, including all of the things that are most respectable, uh, the, the the disciplines that are most respected within our current world and society. Huge point you just made. So in other words, there's not at that bare level of description right there, what you said about evidence and, and seemings, that's not going to change depending on the subject matter. So in other words, it's not like religion has special rules that science doesn't have. Exactly. Or even so, just common sense stuff. Exactly. I, I mean, I think that's a desideratum of this approach, right? Is that, right. Um, you know, you're we're not making a special exemption for religious belief. Oh, it operates on different rules than any other belief. That's, that's, that is maybe the huge, hugest point you've made just from a, an everyday misconception kind of perspective i think it's what, what i feels true to me to say that <laughs> yeah that's right well the and zeit, so the zeitgeist just feels like yeah. a lot of people don't you know when people talk about religion they they act like it's a it's a super special different kind of field it has its and, own rules well and christianity has too often bought into that um, yeah that's true now it's interesting because i teach this Western philosophical tradition. So, you know, we, we start in the ancient period where most of these thinkers, the best ones, Plato and Aristotle, they believe in God. We get into the medieval period where uh, most of these great philosophers are Christians or Islam, Islamic or Jewish, and they all believe in God. And they're all confident that reason points to God. And it's really only in the later um, sort of the end of the early modern period with Hume and Kant that you get a, a, a sort of skepticism about the ability of reason mm-hmm. to tell us about God or anything metaphysical. Um, right. The, and, and, but of course, you know, they're skeptical about, you know, Hume is skeptical about pretty much everything. Yeah. So God, uh, God's not the only thing that he's skeptical about, but. Um, Including whether he exists or what he, right. what is, what is it that a self is? Yeah. So it's no surprise you can't know that God exists because no kidding, exists. <laughs> I know that, that you know philosophy that that uh, 
despair and the ability of reason to tell yeah. us anything about God pervades the culture, mm-hmm. becomes mainstream. And today we still have that. Um, and you see Christians even sort of taking the stance of, well, yeah, reason can't lead you to God. Um, and so maybe it's a blind leap of faith, which I think is a kind of misreading of Kierkegaard, but, um, I wonder how much the, I wonder how much the piece of Westphalia kind of thing has to do with that, because sometimes I feel like it's just trying to keep the peace. Like, I mean, uh, if you mention anything about politics in certain circles, like some, sometimes in Christian circles, sometimes there's just, just like this tensing up, like. Mm-hmm. and and it, it it's like almost like there's special rules for politics too and like almost like there's no rules for politics which is totally false um in actuality it's false but yeah but it's like uh, you know i think that there's this feeling like we have to keep the peace and and there's so many religious wars and people fighting and there's so many denominations and there's mm-hmm there's a concern for this in scripture too. Like Jesus wanted the disciples to be unified. He had to kind of command them. And I think the reason is because they, they had a tendency to already kind of bicker and complain and fight. Right. And and you see that in Paul's letters too. He's putting out fires and he's, he's trying to unite people and deal with immorality. And of course, if you can't talk about those things, then you're prevented from being unified around them simply by virtue of, well, you know, it, it's, you it's tough to have, to be able to have a productive conversation on some topics. If people have a lot of emotional investment in the outcome and, and there's a threat that if you go against a cherished, if you're headed toward a, the opposite of their cherished, conclusion then that's the end of the relationship or they might not know how to deal with you or you don't they're worried that you don't know how to deal with them yeah that's absolutely true um there are also i mean so there are lots of things sort of reinforcing this culture including mm-hmm. by the way i think this is something you've probably thought about but um a kind of uh uh attempt to you, you want to keep christianity um privatized yeah so right if if the belief in god or belief in um, christianity is isn't based on reason but is on some kind of other thing that um well then you know you can't bring that into the public sphere Um, right uh on the other hand if reason does lead us to the conclusion that god exists then uh it becomes really hard to say why that shouldn't factor into our deliberations about, you know, the well-being of the people and how we ought to organize our society uh, to to promote that. And so, yeah. um, I think from a variety of angles, you've got people sort of trying to press uh, this idea that reason, in some way. Um, if, if it doesn't even lead you away from God, it at the very least doesn't lead you towards God. And, um, Christians sadly, I think have, have embraced that uh, in certain ways. You know, Some I think we, we've already broached the third bullet point, which you've mentioned, which was things can seem different to different people. Mm-hmm. And the, 
the conclusion from that is not that there's no truth or there's different truths. You definitely don't say that. You say part of why some that's part of why sometimes you see reasonable disagreement about important issues. But what follows from disagreement? Um, yeah, I think that's where you were headed on that. I was. Well, hoping, so, I hope I set you up on that. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's it's complicated, right? So we've even been saying reason does reason lead you to God. Yeah. Now recall our earlier conversation about how Plato and Aristotle, their achievement is not just theirs, but of their cultures and their tradition. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what reason tells you about the world, if you're using it properly, depends an awful lot on the tradition that you're in and how you're being educated. Because mm -hmm. you might be educated to sure. see the world a certain way. Yeah. And based then on your experiences of the world, you may reach one conclusion. If you raised in a different tradition, you may reach a different conclusion. Yeah. Now, in terms of the sense of, of a justified belief, you can have a justified belief that's false. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, if all my evidence points in one direction and it turns out that, you know, lo and behold, that's that's wrong. Yeah. My belief is false, but it's still reasonable for me to have held that belief. Right. I was justified. And so I used to I, believe that Santa Claus didn't exist. And because <laughs> I was raised in a home that where it didn't exist. But then I had extra evidence later when I went to college. Precisely. And so now I believe in Santa Claus. <laughs> but yeah, obviously the opposite of that, but uh didn't take until college. But uh yeah, the same kind of thing where your parents um, provide evidence for Santa Claus. Yeah. In my case, it was a post. It was actually something from the post office. So the post office was involved in this. The U.S. government was involved um, at that time. <laughs> but I found the presence. Reasonable for you to believe in Santa Claus. until it was reasonable, but it was false. Turns out it was false. Turns out it was false. Yeah. Well, so um, let's... Uh, well, I'm losing my train of thought here. Sorry. Uh, oh, you know what? I'm getting a doorbell. Hold on a sec. Okay, we're back. <laughs> Sorry okay. to interrupt you. Well, so um, just to kind of uh, recap here, if seemings, these experiences of the world are at the foundation, are ultimate evidence for everything, then whether or not it's justified for you to believe in God is going to depend on how things seem to you. Like do the experiences you have of the world support God's existence or do they not? Mm -hmm. And that's going to depend more generally on the perspective of the world that you have, um, which yeah. is going to be in large part influenced by the tradition that you're, you're growing up in. Um, uh, although, you know, it will be tailored to each individual. Yeah. So for instance, if you grew up in a kind of scientific culture, not one that just values science, but one that elevates science to, as the only tool of discovery in the world, then, um, you know, you're going to have a, a certain experience of reality where certain things seem implausible to you. Maybe you you listen to our earlier discussion of souls uh, in nature, and you just think souls are weird. These are 
ridiculous things. It's utterly implausible. It's like Santa Claus. Yeah. Can't see them. You're going to put a, you can't see them, right? It's a religious talk. It's religious. The fact that you can't see them is going to seem like very strong evidence to you that uh, they're not there because if they were there, you would be able to see them. Notice all the assumptions underlying that. Yeah. This is going to pervade the way that you experience the world. And so I would accept that it's possible for someone to have a kind of perspective on the world where they maybe then could have a justified belief in atheism. Often, I think if you poke them and you probe them and you get them to think about it, they'll actually see there's some inconsistency there and you can, so you can still do that, but um, compare this to someone who has a very different perspective on the world. Um, They're more open to different kinds of uh, different ways of knowing something. Uh, They, you know, take like the cosmological argument. Uh, This is really a family of arguments that is sort of motivated by the the basic sort of insight of like, why is there anything at all? You know, you have this whole cosmos here, this whole reality. Is this just here without explanation? Or is there some uh, explanation for why it's here? And that would have to be some kind of transcendent source of being, um, something very much like God. You know, to me, whenever I teach this, sort of argument in um, philosophy of religion, that underlying causal or explanatory principle that there has to be some source of being to explain why there's anything at all is just utterly evident. <laughs> um, and I have students like that, right? Who who just will say, how could anyone not find this argument persuasive? And then you have others, you know, you go out into the discipline and you see people mocking the cosmological argument as a paltry argument that no one could take seriously. And they, they apparently don't find that those causal or explanatory principles very compelling. Um, Mm -hmm. What I want to say is that ultimately, but they're going by seemings too, right? Is that where you were going? If I'm being charitable, they're um, going by seemings to it. They're atheists because it seems that that's true. Yeah, that's the charitable interpretation, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure some people can be making mistakes. I don't want to rule that out. But the best proponents on both sides of the debate often sure. are being uh, reasonable. Yes. They just have different perspectives, saying things seem differently to them. So what you're saying is um, that, well, one of the things you're saying is that evidence for lack of a better term, can be relative to an individual and maybe even a culture uh, because of all the factors that go into how we process justification, seemings, and evidence is basically seemings when you get down to it, whether it's perception, memory, intuition. Those are the three things you mentioned. Introspection. Uh, Introspection, sure. How do I know? So... So, but, but evidence is not the same thing as truth. That doesn't mean that truth is relative. Right. Truth is not relative. (laughs) It's, it's, uh, how would you define truth? 
Uh, as a kind of correspondence to reality, yeah. although, um, okay. you know, the That's sometimes common load, sense view. Yeah. Sometimes people load some more into the word correspondence than I mean there. I just mean that, um, yeah. you know, if I have a description about the world, what makes it true is that the world really is the way yeah. that that description purports it to be. Yeah. Okay. So, so evidence can be relative it. Uh, rel kind of relative, and then that means your belief formation can be, if it's following the evidence, can also be relative to what you have available. That's right. So, yeah, although um, we have to be careful, just because the term relativism, you know, it's sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, the epistemic standards are the same for everyone, right? Yeah. Like you're supposed to believe in. They apply to everybody. Yeah. And well, and they yeah, are the not same. like everybody has the same understanding of them, but but yeah, they apply equally. So the epistemic standards, though the the true ones, right, um, apply to everyone, right? And that's uh, what you're trying to get at in the field of epistemology. That's, that's right. Really, what your deal is. That's what you're trying to get at. Yeah, and yeah. but, um. So, for instance, if the epistemic principle says you should believe in accordance with your evidence, mm -hmm. we can acknowledge that different people will have different bodies of evidence. Yes. But the duty itself that you mentioned, the intellectual duty, is the same. That's right. Okay. Okay. That's, I think that's very helpful. Um, what about faith? And I'm not talking about the George Michael song, faith, a faith, a faith, a, a baby. <laughs> faith in part is a kind of uh, Christian perspective that causes one's appearance to appearances to align with what God reveals to be true. Right. So if you have different perspectives on the world, um, from one perspective, it may be reasonable to believe that God exists. From another perspective, it may not be. Um, but it's still, the truth is, is one way or the other, right? That's right. So, the truth yeah. is still one way or the other. Um, my, I I've argued that part of what it is to have faith and it's just a part, um, because I think faith has as much to do with the will of the person, uh, a kind of mm. positive orientation towards God, yeah. um, as the head, but that gets, that gets complicated then. It does. Well, and, and the, as we're going to talk about later, I think the head and the heart are not entirely separate in the sense right. that if you have a kind of willful resistance to God, that may be a part of what's preventing someone from taking on mm. a certain kind of pro-theistic perspective, mm. right? Like if I'm, if I'm just sort of dead set against, mm. uh, for whatever reason, <clears throat> God's existence, or here's something interesting. It may not even be you personally. What if you you grow up in a culture, a tradition that is dead set against God? No kidding. And it's going wow. to educate you in a way that yeah. wow. provides this kind of resistance to faith. Yeah. And so I think, but part of what it is to have faith is to to take on a perspective towards the world um, that aligns with what God says is true about it, as mm -hmm. particularly if we're talking about Christian faith as revealed in uh, the Christian scriptures. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if I have this basic kind of trust towards God, then what he 
says is true about the world is going to start to seem true to me. And this means that my moral intuitions are going to begin to align with what Christ says, right? Right. It means that when I think about souls, it's not going to seem weird or odd to me that there are these souls. I'm not going to dismiss that as uh, a fairy tale. I'm going to say, well, it's very, it's plausible to me that humans have immaterial souls because, you know, God is an immaterial agent and, um, (laughs) you know, he's created this rich world. Why wouldn't he have created souls as a part of the natural order? Um, and so this theistic perspective is going to pervade the way that you see Come to see, think of yourself as a soul. Is that how you see yourself? I, as a soul? I see myself as um, a body and soul together. Body and soul. Okay. Yeah. Um, although I'm still formulating my views on that, but yeah, I think the Christian, this is one of those areas where Christianity differs from Plato because Plato would say you're just the soul. Yeah. Um, I, I see the body. Yeah. Yeah. The body is having um, more dignity and a, a closer relationship to my identity. Um, in scripture i think that better explains the resurrection the Mm -hmm. incarnation like how can god become man Mm um you know by by taking on a body right and then and then being resurrected in that body Mm -hmm. because there's something important about that body but but part of what makes that more palatable right is that i think some of the, the christians that want to just identify us with the soul have been raised to think of matter in this very crude way as just an extended substance, basically billiard balls bouncing around in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. But what I see in scripture, like if Paul, what Paul says is right, where in a twinkling of an eye, all things will be renewed. uh, And we're talking about the entire like material world is going to be in some way renewed, redeemed, Mm going to be matter 2.0. (laughs) that's going to operate in accordance with principles that we're unfamiliar with. I mean, Jesus is walking through walls and stuff in the resurrected body. That sounds pretty good to me. When I read that, I think we don't know what the heck matter is. Right. Matter is something deeply mysterious and much more open, much more uh, convertible with like the spiritual than, than we think. And, and if we're, if we're envisioning it as like, it's this clump of atoms with billiard yeah. balls. That's it. We've bought into that, yeah. that sort of um, mechanistic worldview that um, is not the Christian one. Yeah, that's that's very. Uh, I, I'm reminded of a, a philosophy of mind course I took. It was I took a few. One of them was we spent quite a bit of time just trying to define what physical meant. <laughs> Right. And actually, Jaguan Kim had an issue with that. It seemed like when we were reading Mind in a Physical World, and I can't remember if what other book it was, but there was um, there's just a lot of discussion about that. And I don't know where you come down on the philosophy of mind stuff, but you know, maybe you're still wading through it. But um, it's uh, it's definitely related to what we're talking about. It is, yeah. No. So, well, so, um, okay. So faith then, uh, yeah. if you've got faith, right. I think you're going to have lots of evidence for God. 
Um, How would you define faith? Well, again, like I, I don't want to say that this is all that faith is, but I would say that faith, at least in part, involves taking on a certain perspective towards God um, that sees him as uh, good and trustworthy. So obviously that has to seem true to you before you do that or as you're doing it. But it's got to be an experience. It's not have. just like I, it seems to me that God is trustworthy. It could do that. And then you but, have to, you have a choice. So think about it this way. Like if I, if I trust my wife, um, it may seem to me that she's trustworthy. Sure. Mm-hmm, sure. But also if she tells me that she's going to go, you know, pick up my daughter from school, um, it seems to me that she will. And I don't mm-hmm. worry about it. Hmm. right so so notice that the trust there is realized in if she says it it seems true to me mm-hmm. um, and there's a, a much more general you know if she if she tells me something she makes a promise to me i believe it um and so it you know if god says i'm going to resurrect you at the end of time <laughs> that seems it seems to you that you'll be resurrected and when you're in moments of anxiety or you're facing death or something, um, you're going to potentially have a, a kind of peace there um, because you have an underlying confidence that God's promise will be kept. Um, so it's much more pervasive, right? And in, in the sense of it's going to affect if God is giving you this um, view of reality, and yeah. what it's all about. Right. In scripture, then the perspective of faith is going to end up sort of infiltrating your ent- your view of the entire world. Right. So, and would you say it's like a trust in, uh, like a belief in action kind of thing? Um. So it's a perspective that leads to belief and action. So, like I'm thinking of of uh, Moses and the burning bush, famous scene. Sure. Uh, where Mose has this miraculous experience and he comes to believe he's talking to God in that moment for good reason. Because I would probably think the same thing if I had that experience, right? I would either think I'm on drugs, but then it doesn't, going back to the memories, I don't seem to have a memory of being on drugs. And I don't think Moses had access to the kind of things that the students at Malibu high school have, for example, out there in the desert. So he's justified in believing he's not on drugs. And therefore he's justified in believing that this is not induced by drugs. Therefore it's a veridical experience because it's, it's got that quality and there's no other reasonable explanation for it. Now, would you say he, he develops a faith like, you know, because he has to choose to do certain things based on that experience. So I, I would say faith comes a little later on in the sense that, you know, someone without faith could potentially come to reasonably believe that God exists. Like you said, if God shows himself in some powerful way, some to somebody, maybe that could convince them that God exists. Okay. Um, 
but you know, faith is not just about believing that God exists. Yeah. It's the about, demons believe that and they shudder. According yeah, to they James. believe that and shudder, right? Yeah, according to James. Um, so it's in terms of the intellectual uh things, it's a much more holistic sort of trusting in that person and what they say um and what and what they promise to do. Um, and this is where the non-intellectual components of faith come in. Um, you know, it's it, Moses is really hesitant to follow God. Yeah. It's command there at first. He doesn't want to go to Egypt. Yeah. He is understandably afraid for his life. Mm-hmm. He's despairing about the ability of God, perhaps, to free the people of Israel from Egypt. After all, like it's, you know, God doesn't come to Moses and say, I'm the only God. Mm. Uh, like Abraham potentially thinks that there are, there maybe are other gods out there um, at this point in, in, in biblical history, right? Um, so Moses has a lot of reasons to sort of, you know, you can understand why he's hesitant to, to do this. Um, but it's in that, okay, as an act of the will, right? Like an orientation of the heart, I am going to follow this God. This will be my God. I'm going to believe in him. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I'm going to follow what he says. And so it is an intellectual orientation, but it's actually a, a much more general kind of positive orientation towards God. Okay. Um, where you decide to trust yeah. this God and to follow him. Um, and that includes following him intellectually by believing what he says is true, but also following him in terms of action, in terms of acting on, uh, in the ways that he directs us to act. Does that ever involve potentially ignoring evidence that comes up that goes against it so that you can keep your commitment? Um, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, What's like if the like if the New York Times uh, next week, or the New Yorker magazine, um, had a front page story that God is dead, or whatever, like Time did one time, sure. And and there's a new argument. There's new evidence that God doesn't exist. It's cutting edge, and uh, here it is. Here's the whole story, and. Yeah. You know, am I I not supposed to read that? Should I not read that? Oh, you can totally read it. Um, Oh, okay. So, uh, but I think often with faith, you will have a kind of confidence um, in God that can persist challenges like that. Even if, even if the argument is um, somewhat persuasive and, and provides some evidence against God, um, I think faith can provide a kind of resilience to that. So for instance, right. I have faith in my wife. Um, And, you know, you can misplace your faith in someone, but let's say my faith is well-placed, meaning that it's grounded in a kind of personal knowledge that I have of her and her character. Um, And And, what that does. Good memory and, and you have pretty good eyesight and, and, You're you're well you're more healthy than that, psychologically. I know, I know <laughs> you don't her. Have, yeah, okay. 
and I mean, that's not just, I see her and have remembered events with her. Um, I know her, uh, I know her like as a person and that is, has engendered a sort of perspective, uh, towards her and her actions in the world. Um, such that, you know, when she tells me something, I believe it. When she promises to do something, I believe she'll do it. Um, well, he has a consistency there that allows you to kind of latch on to a pattern. Yeah. And let's, so let's assume, you know, what, well, one of the things that she's promised me is that she's going to be faithful to me, um, as her only, you know, marital, uh, partner in the marital bed. Right. Well, let's assume that I, uh, discover that, you know, she has been meeting with, uh, some man, uh, in, you know, uh, the bar, the local brewery once a week for the last, you know, month, some incriminating circumstances there. Right. Well, if I, if I truly have a, a strong enough faith in my wife, when I hear that, I'm not going to immediately conclude she's cheating on me, right? I, I might think, well, it seems like there's got to be some explanation for this. Yeah, Maybe maybe she's helping him write a book. My wife is an editor and an author. Maybe she's working with him on some church project that she doesn't want me to know about, or, or you know, maybe she's planning my surprise birthday with him. I, the point is like, it's not going to just seem to me evident that she's cheating on me there. Yeah. Uh, though it is an incriminating circumstance. It would, it have, would, uh, it would uh, cause some curiosity though, right? It would. Yeah. And I would go ask her. Oh, okay. And we would, I mean, now the thing is, you know, my wife is not perfectly trustworthy. I can't place, it's not rational for me to place absolute faith in her um because i don't you know she she could fail um mm. but god if he exists is absolutely trustworthy and so the limit of the faith now, now how do you know that how do you know that god is absolutely trustworthy is well it... so the the extent of my faith does have to be tapered it seems by my personal knowledge of god but the failure there would be um we could all agree to the conditional if God exists, then he's perfectly trustworthy. Is that because of the definition of God? Like analytically? Yeah. Okay. And you know that because of the ontological argument or how do you know that? How do you know what the definition of God is? Well, the way that I'm, um, if we're talking about the Christian God here, right, then, mm -hmm. um, then we're, we're, we have a conception of God such that he does not lie. He does not uh, make promises that he won't keep. Right. Uh, he's faithful. But you'll notice that like God provides evidence of this to the people of Israel throughout history. Well, even though he is 100% trustworthy, he has to show Abraham and these other people, Job, Moses, um, that, you know, Jacob, uh, you can go through the story and you can see God sort of providing evidence of um, his faithfulness to them yeah. and, and reminding them, like, I am going to keep my covenant um, and sort right. of revealing himself over time. Now, I think the final revelation of this is in the person of Jesus Christ. 
So in the person of Jesus, we have the kind of ultimate revelation of who God is. And we can see that God is um, not only someone who is for us, but who's willing to die for us, who loves us so much, desired that we be with him so much that he's willing to suffer and die. And so I think, you know, the the person of Jesus provides a kind of um, a very strong grounds for faith in God and uh, in his his uh, reliability, his dependability with respect to his promises. Do you um, believe that Jesus um, was crucified and died? Yes. Uh, do you believe that he resurrected, like he came back to life? Yes. Like, 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 as the kids really, really. say, literally, <laughs> like, yes, legitimately. I was just mentioning this the other day. Uh, I, I was talking with my wife um, about, so I'm, I'm Anglican now. And uh, I was talking with my wife about the mess in the church of England. Mm. Um, you know, 90% of bishops in the church of England voted for the same sex marriage blessing that they've recently uh, brought into the, the liturgy of the church of England. And uh, often that is a sign of a kind of departure from uh, a literal belief in the things depicted in scripture. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, because, you know, it often has to involve a, a reading of scripture. That's much um different and it often yeah. you know showing it, it's sort of a sign that you maybe uh you don't agree with some of these other things as well yeah and i remember just telling my wife yesterday i'm so naive because i just actually believe all this stuff hmm. i actually think it's true that jesus is god and that he died and was resurrected um the way that i would explain that is is faith that god has given me a kind of in a good way, naive trust that what scripture says is true. And as I read it and it pervades my, my uh, view on the world, um, I begin to have a kind of systematic way of looking at reality that aligns with all of this. And here's the thing, like you should absolutely subject that to critical scrutiny but you can only scrutinize a perspective from a perspective, right? There's no getting, there's no like view from nowhere where you can get out of, um, yeah. uh, get beyond these uh, experiences that you have of the world of what seems evident to you yeah. and see like. Some people talk that way sometimes where like, oh, well, if we think about it, then that sounds like it sounds like you're, you're getting to the true perspective from which to look at all this stuff and and then you know and then you crawl back down which they often just, mean just, a kind of anti-christian yeah that's typically on, seems like that that's a lot of times how it's used huh yeah. yeah well when i when i subject christianity and the christian perspective to critical scrutiny hmm. and i say like okay well does god really exist do, you know uh do these moral judgments that that these moral teachings that Jesus give us, do they align with what's real? And is the is the view coherent? And you know, you you go through this process of critical reflection, and at almost every turn, 
my confidence in the Christian worldview is simply uh, bolstered. Yeah. It, it makes a lot of sense to me and it keeps making yeah. sense the more that I subject it to critical scrutiny. Now, there are definitely moments where, like, for instance, um, I was reading in the Gospels the other day and Jesus says uh, to Peter and the apostles, um, all these things that I'm talking about when it comes to the end times will uh, happen before this generation passes away. It seems like he's saying that the end times, that the second coming will occur before the end of the first century, before the apostles standing there have died. Hmm. Did Jesus make a false prophecy? I mean, that you could read that and have a, a pang of, well, hold on. Um, I don't know how to make sense of that. Right. But just like the situation with my wife, right. Where there's, yeah, I might have a question about what she's doing with this guy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an underlying confidence in, but hold on. I know this woman. I know who she is. And, and because of that, I can sort of withstand those moments of doubt and I'll ask her, we'll think it through. We'll explore it a little bit further. And generally speaking, right. With my wife, there maybe some explanation presents itself. Well, it's the same thing with Christianity, right? You have these pangs of, well, what do we make of Jesus's prophecy there? Right. So I go out and I watched a great video uh, by, <laughs> Uh, where some very smart scholars ex- sort of opened up the nature of prophecy in the Bible. And I thought, this is, this is really interesting. They're giving me a couple of ways here of understanding this um, that I, that I think withstand critical scrutiny that, that can sort of reconcile that um, with the divinity of Christ. And so um, you do have to go through a reflective process as a mature believer it's not the case that, well, it seems to you that God exists, that Christianity is true. End of story. Mm -hmm. Um, You do have to go through the the hard process of sort of, you know, reconciling all of these things together, weighing the various evidence. Um, But, but underlying it, I think is a kind of, you know, supernaturally given confidence um, that comes from faith. You know, I, I don't know if you remember this, but in that logic class from 2008, from fall 2008, gosh, I can't believe that was 15 years ago. Wow. Almost 15 years ago. Um, I have photos still in my iPhoto because I took pictures of the board every day, mm-hmm. what we covered. And... I talked about truth, belief, and evidence. I don't know if you remember that because I gave the same lecture about basic epistemology to all of my classes, no matter what it was. In fact, I even did it in constitutional law when I was teaching that. I I think I gave the same lecture at some point to the American founding and to my Congress class. So it's a little bit different in those classes because they're just like, you know, (laughs) but, um, but uh, there was a proposition on the ballot prop eight at at the time, which was um, clarifying that 
marriage shall remain what it always has been past and it passed and uh, later it was it uh, was struck down by a, a, a district court in San Francisco right and during that time I we we actually talked about the definition of marriage in that logic class I don't know if you remember that but but I was working through my thoughts about it and that was one of those moments where I was like okay did I get this right? Did I, am I wrong about this? Because there's a lot of social pressure at the time in California to, um, to fudge on that or to feel guilty about it or feel bad about it. There was a lot of um, name calling and it was hard to kind of get through, think through that. So um, that, that's kind of, you know, it can happen even in politics what I was yeah. going to say is, is like, because of these, they, they spill out into public policy disputes. Uh, these kind of things are all related. Yeah. And, um, and so a lot of the, the stuff you're talking about does kind of translate into, and I think you have to have safe spaces for these kind of conversations. And I, this is what I lament is that, I mean, what I mean by safe space is not, got to clarify that term and this. i do yeah sure <laughs> i mean safety is a good thing it's not a bad thing sure uh, i it's come to me it what did mean excluding certain views that's not how i mean it i mean um allowing for the kind of conversation that you and i are having right now where you can say what you think and i can say what i think and you're not worried about being fired and obviously you feel very secure that you can make a comment like you made about same-sex marriage and sure. by the way i did not know 90 percent because i'm anglican too yeah <laughs> in fact i you know so i'm like oh geez that's that's uh that doesn't surprise me i guess because well it does surprise me actually was this just in england that this vote took place just in England. Just in England. Okay, that doesn't surprise me. But if you included Africa, I would be surprised about yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, the, well, so a, a really important point that you brought up, um, just in kind of like resituating ourselves, recapping what's reasonable for you to believe based on, is based on how things seem to you, your perspective. Mm -hmm. There is a perspective from which belief in God and belief in Christianity is quite reasonable. Um, there are some from which it's not. Yeah. Um, why do we go for one versus another? Yeah. And can you convince somebody else? Cause this is on can your you, list. Yeah. You say the way you said is if Christians are to convince others, this will generally require a change in perspective, which is rarely accomplished simply through the rehearsal of explicit arguments. Yeah. Yeah. So it notice that the kind of uh, process that one has to go through to move uh, to, to come to believe in Christianity in a reasonable way then involves a sometimes radical change in perspective. Mm -hmm. um, this is why we call it like a conversion. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's I mean, it's an intellectual conversion. Um, yeah. It's moving from one 
way of seeing the world to a radically different way of seeing the world. Hmm. And <clears throat> this is, by the way, I think Kierkegaard is a misunderstood figure. I think this is what Kierkegaard is talking about. Um, he he kind of seeds uh, the term reason uh, to like, well, whatever the culture at the time says is reasonable. Let's just grant that that's what's reasonable. Okay. So from a kind of contemporary scientific mindset where it all has to be empirical, empirically verified, um, belief in God wouldn't be reasonable. Mm-hmm. And so Kierkegaard's going to say, if you're operating from that perspective, you're not going to be able to appreciate the arguments for God's existence. And they're not even going to get off the ground for you. Um, the kinds of uh, things that, that believers might point to um, that are the, you know, constitute the reasons for believing in God or for trusting in him, you're not even going to countenance them in, in, a, in a way that's charitable enough to um, for them to gain traction with you. And uh, so what Kierkegaard acknowledged, I think rightly, is that part of the coming to believe in, in, in Christianity has to be a perspective shift uh, to a, a radically different way of looking at the world. Um, and this is not something that typically happens just by, well, here's an argument, premise one, premise two, right? You know, yeah. here's the conclusion three, um, because the person with the different perspective is not going to find those premises compelling. So what you have to do is you have to give them the premises, but you have to at simultaneously try to change their perspective yeah. to get them to enter into a perspective from which those premises can be appreciated as true. And that is a much more complicated thing. Um, there are a variety of ways of doing it. Like Eleanor Stump, for instance, is a philosopher who's sort of argued, uh, I think effectively with respect to the problem of evil, that what you need to do to get people to appreciate how suffering can be reconciled with Christianity is you have to sort of immerse them within the Christian worldview more generally. Um, because if, you know, they have value judgments and intuitions that completely uh, are completely different from the ones that, that are present within Christianity, then you're not going to be able to understand the Christian response or find it plausible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she recommends using biblical narratives. Right by by telling a kind of story, you can get people to enter into temporarily the sort of point of view of the author of that story or the characters within it, mm-hmm. and and get people to sort of imaginatively take on the Christian perspective for at least a bit of time, and sometimes in doing that, uh, it sticks. People mm-hmm. begin to see the coherence of the position. Um, the elegance of the sure. solutions that it provides. Um, and and it just starts making sense to them. So it happens vice versa too. Like some people, they try on the atheist hat and then they go, they holy Nietzsche. crap, I'm an atheist. Yeah. Uh, because it's so simple. You know, That's right. Why yeah. is there so well, much space? Why is it so, why is the evil, there's so much evil in the world? Why uh, Why are people always trying to exclude homosexuals from good things yeah. like marriage? Well, and so this is this That's is what I was saying. coming back to is, right, that sometimes this is a purely intellectual thing. Maybe, you know, you try on one way of looking at the world and it makes sense to you in a way that 
the previous way that you were looking at the world didn't quite make sense. And so you, you convert from one perspective to another, but a lot of times, a lot, a lot, it actually has a lot more to do with social pressures, um, with the will. Uh, yeah. Kierkegaard talks a lot about this, about a kind of like pride and a resistance mm -hmm. to certain perspectives mm -hmm. because sure. there's an understanding that like in taking on that perspective, it requires something of me that I'm unwilling to give up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, you just brought up the role of social pressure to, yes. to hold certain views, right? And it can um, feel manipulative is, is what I was kind of saying is can yeah. social pressures. I mean, people are paid big money in politics and in, in law, like jury consultants, for example. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty scary. Well, you'd this... like to think of a jury as like, you know, jury of your peers. What, what, what more could you want? But yeah. then you have this whole process of paying a lot of money for people to try to rig the outcome and advertising too. Yeah. You know, advertising is big money and it's all because it works. It does. And this work. is where that, you know, I said faith has some intellectual dimensions, but it's actually a lot about the will of the person. Mm. Um, well, do you love God more than you love the money? Do you love God more than you love the. Fitting the in. Fitting in social pressure. Fitting, fitting in. Yeah. yeah being being on one of the crowd. Um, because being, if you do. Being cool. Being cool. Yeah. God, you know, if you, if your devotion is first and foremost to God, um, then there's going to be a willingness to take on that perspective in a way that if you love other things more, that can prevent you from being willing to take on that perspective with where there's a kind of like tacit understanding that if I do take on those views, I'm not going to, I'm going to lose my coolness. <laughs> I'm not going to be accepted among the social group. I'm going to lose out on this paycheck. I'm going to lose out um, on whatever it is I'm looking for other than God. Yeah. That can so, be quite scary for people. It is. And I mean, all that to say then, like in terms of, you know, conv converting people, convincing people, I mean, that's not within our power to do. I mean, we can try to provide, you know, conditions for it, but ultimately it has to be the spirit of God working in the heart of somebody to uh, lead to a kind of a laying down of their resistance to that perspective and a taking on of the Christian perspective. Hmm. Um, like I said, you can try to sort of provide opportunities for that, by, you know, presenting the Christian position um, in this holistic way, maybe through narratives, maybe through biblical narratives specifically, um, you can try to, um, you know, make uh, fertile the soil, um, but ultimately it has to be the heart of, you know, it comes down to the, the heart of the person. <laughs> And, and whether they're willing to accept that um, or not. So how do you raise another human being to where it's more likely than not that they're going to have that heart? My guess is you've put some thought into that. Yeah. Well, and there's a, uh, I have, I'm still a new father. 
my my oldest is only two years old. Um, okay. And there is a realization, you know, that is hard for me and for parents to accept that ultimately, you know, you can't ensure that your child is uh, going to look at the world the same way you do. Mm. Uh, now, psychology does tell us that children typically go the way of their fathers. Um, so if you have a strong Christian father in the home, that typically leads to um, a stronger Christian later in life. Um, but yeah, I think you try to immerse them in a community of people. Again, it's, it's not just you, right? It's, it's, a, it's a tradition. Um, introduce them to a rich Christian tradition um, of reflection, of literature, of art, of practice of friendship uh, where they are immersed in this way of looking at the world that is the Christian way of looking at the world. And that's going to most likely instill in them a certain kind of perspective if they're receptive to it. Um, that also means that you got to get that right. You got to get it for your right for yourself. Like what is that perspective that you, is true? That's right. And you have to make sure uh that they're not having it countered by other other things. I mean, yeah. If you're sending your children Jeez. to public school right now in at least certain states, what are you doing? Like yeah. you're you're putting your kids in this environment where they're going to receive exactly the opposite. Right. A, a worldview. That's why I've had homeschoolers social on, yeah. pressure. How yeah. I mean, you expect your teenager, you're like your your pre teen, early teenager, middle school kid, which is the most vulnerable and volatile part of your youth usually. Oh man. Yeah. To withstand the social pressures where everybody is saying yeah. it's just basic human decency and love to endorse all of these views that go contrary to what right. the Christian worldview says. Yeah. I mean, I think now I mean, yeah, some people some, yeah. think it goes too far. We don't want to become hermits, but like, and and maybe people feel like they can't because they have to work, and the school is basically a babysitter for them. That's true. That's because true. of childcare, childcare is expensive, and public school is free, quote unquote yeah. free. We I covered this on the podcast earlier. You want to check out the Jessica Wilkinson episode. Those of you who are interested in that topic whether it's affordable and it actually is affordable. I mean, there are groups of people around the country that are, that are in hostile States that uh, are trying to do this. And I think Hillsdale's actually, you know, on the cutting edge of a lot of this movement where it's all about resources and allowing for the conversations to take place. Because what I love about Hillsdale, I've been reading in primus for a long time, ever since I was a kid, we had Primus right around. <laughs> and um, my grandpa was a huge fan, is a huge fan. He's still alive. He's a hundred years old now. But he, he uh, you know, back, even back when George Roach was running the place and that, that, that's a dating. I have, I have George Roach's books on my bookshelf, if you don't know wow. who that is. <laughs> but, uh, and I went to school with Larry Arn's daughter, uh, Katie who uh who's involved in this movement as well but um she's it, leading the barney charter school initiative yeah yeah planting classical 
schools all over the country. Is she still in Texas or is, is she somewhere else now? You're in Hillsdale, Michigan now. Oh, she's up there. Okay, cool. Um, so you guys don't take any tax money and that allows you to be free of the uh, regulations that are so oppressive. And in fact, people will say, uh, I think it's Larry, the president will say that he, they have a full-time person in DC that his only job is to ensure that Hillsdale does not get any federal money because with the money comes the control. And with the control comes the conditions for um, squashing the kind of free exercise of, of sharing of ideas and evidences and perspectives mm-hmm. that would allow for flourishing of the mind to, and make it most likely that you could reach truth instead of making it biased toward any specific um and I think that's how you, that that's how you are so confident that you can, you know, but do you feel like at Hillsdale that you have a pressure to fit in with a certain perspective um, in, a, in an unhealthy way? I mean, well, obviously so that's a good qualification because yeah. I think there's pressure to fit in, mm-hmm. but that's not unhealthy. Sure, um, that's just human I mean, nature. Yeah. Like, shouldn't we want to create, I mean, there's a way you can do it. That is oppressive but to have the pressure of the state involved is what bothers me. Yeah. Well, and so. but what do we mean by the state? Do we mean the government or we mean the regime? Like, I mean, the, the broader regime has to include, uh, you know, cultural institutions and people who vote, these people are voting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly you see, for instance, in America right now, uh, various cultural institutions being used to put pressure on people to endorse certain views. Yeah. I mean, I'm, this is just myself, but I'm not entirely opposed to thinking that what ought to be the case is that the cultural institutions ought to promote good things, <laughs> virtue and, and, uh, and, um, and religion and th- these things that are conducive to the flourishing of society I mean, why would you, if you're a society and you're not using your cultural institutions to try to encourage sure. people to be good? I said the Pledge of Allegiance growing up in, in school, yeah. and I, I I think that was good. I liked that. Um, I know it's kind of controversial in some quarters, but... So when you come to Hillsdale, like as a student, um, there's a culture here of moral seriousness, mm. right? Um, we want to grow in virtue, right? And that means we take our studies seriously. We, uh, you know, we read these books carefully. We try to think through them um, and, and be changed by the ideas that we encounter in them, uh, showing a kind of like respect for the tradition and the wisdom contained therein. Uh, there's a whole culture that's you know sees the value in the liberal arts and and says this is a serious project that we're engaged in in terms of intellectual and moral formation both for our own sakes but for the sake of our families and our communities and our country and that seriousness pervades the student body um and so if you come to hillsdale it's cool 
to be interested in, you know, these in learning. And that's cool. And I actually, that, that itself is missing on most campuses that I'm aware of. Yeah. I mean, you go to Pretty a sad. Friday at five or 6 PM, you go to a lecture and the lecture hall's packed. Oh, like, that's, that's cool. So here's that's the thing. Really cool. right? I mean, I, that's a, that's a kind of pressure to. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good to, kind of know, pressure. Yeah, but, yeah. It, but it's a good kind of pressure. Right. Yeah. Uh, and we do have people that don't agree down the line with everything that the college would endorse. We have lots of those people and they're welcome among us. Hmm. Um, some of them are professors. Some of them are students, hmm. but there is a kind of predominant culture. Um, yeah. Okay. That- it seems like you'd have to have a predominant culture of like, because the, the rest of the culture is so the other way that yeah. you have to be able to have somewhere to stand to push against that. Yeah. You know, well, and I think, you know, if you're talking about liberal education, like what is it about? Um, a lot of it has to be trying to instill that, that perspective. Um, now, I mean, with liberal education, um, it may not be the Christian perspective, but it's going to be one really conducive to it. Yeah. Um, that, that people will find, um, you know, that they're able to wed to a kind of Christian biblical worldview um, in a way that they, they mutually enrich one another. So going back to our earlier comment about like, why read Plato, why read Aristotle? Uh, yeah. Because, you know, they, they do enrich, I think the Christian worldview such that if you don't have them, um, you know, that there, there are, there, there's depth that they can add there. Um, or maybe Christian, you know, the scriptures don't go into the specifics on certain things, um, but merely assume it. So you're happy at Hillsdale? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Can you see yourself teaching there your whole life? Yeah, <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. I mean, right now. Yeah, absolutely, I can. Um, so, what do you know, like the most about it? Lord may take me wherever he wills. But, yeah. uh, but I think my wife and I would love to raise a family, um, have a bunch of kids, raise them in a community like this. Cause so many other professors, you know, are all on board. You have one of these little mini ecosystems where you work with these people, you go to church with these people, you're friends with these people. You know, I work out with these people. Like we just share life together wow. and it's community oriented around, um, again, around this moral seriousness and ultimately around Christ. And so that's the thing I like most about Hillsdale, I think. Um, How are you doing on time and energy? Well, I'm doing okay. I think I've got... um, We've had a pretty substantive conversation for a couple hours now, a little bit over. Yeah. And if you want to cut it off here, that's great. That's fine. Yeah, let's do five minutes to close it out, or or we can close it out now if you prefer. And then, um, well, I, I do I think a- I cut I cut into something you were saying, so maybe just finish that thought. But uh, you you were um, well, well, maybe I'll ask you a question about what it's like living in Michigan. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, 
because we are like most states a red state with blue dots yeah uh, and they're big dots yeah we've got detroit we've got um grand rapids and uh, why do you think of- the cities are blue uh there are some good explanations for that i think they're not coming to mind at the moment <laughs> not my area of expertise um well it's a, it's a political phenomenology question because i mean anybody who's awake or just you know has a pulse if you're if you're just looking at the cities and the urbanization trends which actually the the, the lockdowns uh tended to reverse to some extent because some of those people were fleeing to rural areas but um it is a, it is a puzzling thing why the cities would be blue like that and it might be the puzzling thing why the rural areas are red but yeah might be puzzling why we use the tr- colors red and blue to, to to talk about these things like what's that that's all that's kind of random especially since red is the color of communism that's really weird. Yeah. All sorts well, of weird you know, it, it is weird. I mean, I, in terms of uh, Michigan, right? Like it's becoming increasingly important nowadays to live in a red state. Um, Because my friend, my friend, Matt Peterson would totally agree with you on that. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the, there's a question just about what are we going to do as a country when you have such different perspectives on the world yeah, uh, that are irreconcilable on many important points um, and, 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 you know, such vitriol, you know, behind those disagreements because they do matter. They're important. Um, You know, one thing you might look to to save us as a kind of temporary stopgap would be, um, you know, increase the importance of states. So mm-hmm. somehow get the federal government to <laughs> take its fingers out of things. I don't know how you do that, but let red states be red and blue states be blue. Um, again, I don't know that that's going to happen. I don't have a lot of hope for that. But but if that's the case, then um, you know it's really important then that Michigan goes red, and uh, yeah, and that's very much up in the air. So yeah, it is. That's a real tough, those are tough issues. Those are tough issues. Uh, let's get this on the record. What was your dissertation title? Dissertation, Common Sense Epistemology. No way. Yes. That is a great title. Common uh, Sense Epistemology. And in fact, the... Thomas Reed? Yeah, Thomas Reed. So You in did fact, it on I, Thomas Reed? Really? Well, he was a he was a chapter in the book or in okay. the dissertation. One chapter, and, okay. and uh, was the, kind of the inspiration behind some of the main arguments. And uh, a I lot required of my Loyola ideas. students. Sorry to I required my Loyola students to read Thomas Reed um, every time I taught philosophy of human nature. Their Loyola Marymount tragically ignored. I I mean, mm-hmm. early modern philosophy. Uh, this was true even of uh, Pepperdine. I, I've since talked with Mason about it. Uh, I think we've, we've reconciled, but uh, <laughs> you, you, you do all this epistemology starting with Descartes and, and going yeah. through Locke to Hume. Yeah. 
Uh, and then in response to him, you get caught. Um, and he's presented us with, yeah. this is the only possible right. response to him. And, you know, Hume you leaves you in utter skepticism. Kant leaves you with a subjective reality. Yeah. And and certainly no metaphysics or or anything like God. Um, and Reed represents this breath of fresh air as this oh, yeah. response. Yeah, yeah. And I think in many cases, at least within the the sort of strand of the uh, philosophy that I'm in right now, Reed is sort of winning the day. That's uh, awesome. In a resurgence. So That's so cool. Uh, in fact, I am publishing a book with Rutledge coming out no this year, uh, called Seemings and the Foundations of Justification Ooh. Uh, that will, that basically defends, you know, in, in rigorous fashion, this basic view about the nature of evidence. Um, How cool. And again, inspired, at least in part by Thomas Reed. Any other major figures in your dissertation besides Reed? Uh, contemporary figures that uh, are follow in sort of the vein of that common sense tradition. Throw like a couple names out. Michael Humer. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. He'd be sort of the main one. Um, okay. All right. But there are lots of others. I mean, this in the same tradition, there's Chisholm and... Um, all sorts of other epistemologists. I, yeah, Chisholm. Um, I, I, I think it was humor that really his book "Skepticism and the Veil of Perception." That I, I really, I think that's where I got a, a firm appreciation of Reed. I think it was that book. That that book is the source of the kind of principle, at least in contemporary times, the principle that I'm endorsing here. Cool. Um, in my book, I kind of show that, and you know, Michael would not say otherwise, but. Um, that sort of view has been endorsed throughout history. Mm. Like you can go back to Aristotle and the Stoics and the academic skeptics, and they're, they're going to endorse a similar kind of view. Um, it's not been universally held by any means, but it, it, it does show up throughout the Western philosophical tradition. Who was on your committee? Um, Who's your Jonathan chair? Jonathan Kwanvig was my chair. K-V-A-N-I-G. Mm-hmm. He's a, famous epistemologist that's right and uh trent doherty who's another uh epistemologist in this area uh-huh. uh alexander Proust, who's maybe the most brilliant man i've ever met just he has two phds yeah in mathematics and in philosophy mind uh, blown he skipped undergrad and went straight to his phd program in mathematics at i did not know that yeah Wow. Uh, he's a Christian I, too, right? Yeah. Um, in fact, he's he's very serious Catholic and he wrote oh. a book in sexual ethics while I was there at Baylor. He has a book on sexual ethics, really. Called One seen, Body. I haven't seen it. It's a traditional uh Catholic sexual ethics. Um cool. I think it's fantastic. Thank you for uh, pointing that out to me. Sure. And then Todd Beerus, who's the Redian. Oh yeah. He's, so odd Burris. Yeah. How, how do you say his last name? Uh, Burris. Yeah. Burris. Yeah. Oh, okay. I've always said Burris, but I've never met him. Um, we had Trent on Trent. Trent was on Trent was the first epistemologist on this podcast, uh, last year. And I had him come on to talk about evidence. 
Well, there, he probably said very true things given. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm a big fan of how you guys approach evidence and, and just epistemology in general. And I, I, I think that for this podcast, I, I don't think we can get enough epistemology. So I'm, I'm looking forward to your book. I will sure. get it. I will get it, but I will ask you to sign it for me. I will happily sign it for you. You might have to wait a while because it'll be expensive at first. They tend to okay. be this presses, but yeah. uh, okay. And in the meantime, I'll send you the manuscript. Oh, even better! Great, Blake. I I've very much enjoyed our time together today. This was fantastic. Yeah, great to catch up and to talk to you. Yeah. It's been a long time. I can't remember the last time I saw you, but it's been a long time since I saw you regularly every, like every week and got a chance to talk to you. So that's right. But, well, a pleasure uh, to catch up. Yeah. It was a pleasure for me too. All right. Well, 